Hey, everybody. Wow, right? That was something else. Even if you didn't love the episode like we did, you can't deny it was incredibly spectacular. The budget, the effects, the everything just... I can't believe they so clearly, definitively, unquestionably just killed Jamie off like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've got a lot to talk about, as we always do. It feels like, even though this is a shorter episode, there's no shortage of things to say. And this one of the things I want to start with is the fact that we're in season seven. The as amazing as a lot of times a show, a lot of times shows start off better than they end or better than they progress because it's harder to keep going than it is to write beginnings. But the thing is, if you do it well or do it well enough, you get to make callbacks. You get to make callbacks, and the farther you go along, the deeper and more meaningful those callbacks to, can be, and the more multitudes of them you can have. Yeah. And there are a lot here, and there've been a lot of them all season, and they're and they've been great. They haven't been overdone. They've just been fun. There's... There've been at least two this whole season. <laughs> And that's a great thing. And that's one of the, the powers that a long-running show has that short-running shows can. You can't have callbacks in season one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like what? And one of the things I like about this is that makes me think of it is our, one of our favorite shows is It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, as Sean is representing right here. And this episode was directed by Matt Shackman, who has directed more It's Sunny episodes than anyone. And It's Sunny is full of callbacks and self-referential humor and of course it didn't start that way it couldn't do that in season one and two and three but by now in season 12 which is how many seasons sunny has it's constantly able to refer to its old jokes without recycling them it just or even when they do recycle them it's not like they're out of funny ideas it's just part of their character yeah you know i think that's one reason shows like it's always sunny and the office and game of thrones are so good is because the character's are well-defined. And whether you go through an episode or a season or seven seasons, the characters keep being who they are. And so that allows for what you might call recycled jokes, but they're really just part of the character coming up over and over again. Just like in real life, you probably know some person in your life that has some quirk about them that they did one time when you first met them. And they keep doing it as long as you know them as <laughs> part of who they are. You know, so. so true. So they broke a lot of their own records here. So I, and I think it's appropriate that all these callbacks are happening amidst, you know, with this sunny crossover. And in fact, there is more, you know, there's something we're going to maybe look at a little more on Wednesday is there's some rumors and some photos. It may have been Charlie and Mac standing behind Grey Worm as the, during the approach at uh, Casterly Rock oh, really? in the previous episode. Yeah, uh, it's not 100% be... confirmed. And there's a major league pitcher in this episode, something we didn't bother to grab a shot of that. We're going to talk about that more on Wednesday. But I feel like we would know. That's... If they kept that secret, impressive. <laughs> and it's, it's you know, there's as we know, we've talked about before, there's a lot of connections between Sonny and Game of Thrones. Yeah, they, Sonny, It's Always Sonny did a Game of Thrones. The directors, D&D, did an episode of It's Always Sonny, yeah. That's right. They did uh, Flowers for Charlie, and there's a lot of connections. There's other connections between those two shows besides this director, Matt Shackman. There's a lot. So it's less crazy than it seems. But also, yeah, like I said, they broke a lot of their own records. They had 20 people on fire at once, at one one scene, which is some sort of cinematic record, at least for TV. All those trick riders. There was 11 Danny Dragon shots in the previous, in last year's finale when she was burning the slaver ships. They had 80 this time. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. They didn't have any star wipes, though. No star wipes. <laughs> Not a single star wipe. <laughs> And all there was cameras and explosions and all that. I highly recommend you watch the behind the scenes on this episode. It was about 13 minute mini documentary 
where they went through all this stuff and showed you how it was made. It's really just mind-blowing, the complexity and the amazingness. And it just gives you appreciation for all they have to do in this short period of time to make the show happen. And that's why I'm so forgiving a lot of times on errors, errors in adaptation and logistical issues and maybe some small issues with continuity because of that. I mean, they have to deal with these insanely... For George R. R. Martin to make a change, he just has to, you know, erase it and rewrite something. Not that it, he doesn't have amazing creativity. I'm not trying to take away from that. But when these guys make a change, that sometimes that means, like, literally moving millions of dollars around or costing millions of dollars. Yeah. You know, that's the difference between having a die roll for not, or that's why there's only maybe... It's probably why there's only one dragon instead of all three in this one, because, damn, just the one dragon was <laughs> <is> incredible. <laughs> It's so. also possible Danny doesn't have full control over three at once either. You know? It's true. It's true. I mean, maybe she had, you know, it was easier for them when they were burning ships because everyone's the enemy. Yeah. But in this case, it's, I don't know if the dragons, the dragons can tell could friend from foe. Accidentally kill. Even if they could tell, they still might just do it on accident. So. That's right. And there's a lot more use of sound and music in this episode than is typical. They always do a good job. I mean, music Force is always fantastic. But they did some trickier things in this episode, some unusual things, and some fun things that we'll point out as well in this episode. So... A couple of announcements before we get started. If you're listening to this on podcast, what we've been doing in, in a lot of these live streams is we're going as long as we want, but we cut off some of the questions, some of the questions from you guys so that we can make it more manageable so we have time to edit it and get it up reasonably quickly. Cut it off from the podcast. Right, right. So the full length is going to be at least two hours every podcast, but sometimes we're trimming a few of the live questions to make the audio-only version a little more uh, manageable. So if you had a question that you asked us and you didn't hear it in the podcast version, well, it might have been answered in the video in the video version. So you can always check the end of that. Most of the questions we hold till the end. If you do have a super chat, we'll let that get through and answer it directly. But if not, we will be answering most of the questions at the end. Now, if we get you know, if we, we committed to, if we got 10,000 views, we would do a 24-hour stream. Was it 10,000? It was 6,000 6, 6, live viewers. Man, maybe like we should have said 10,000. You guys are, are blowing up, blowing us up. No, but uh, will we also commit to editing that into 24-hour podcast? Oh, my God. <laughs> I never thought about the editing job involved in a 24-hour stream. Yeah, woo. Uh, I should have thought of that. <laughs> too late. Too late. Too late. Too late. Oh, well, what am I going to do? And we have, of course, some shout-outs to do. We have our wonderful Dragon Rider patrons. And in addition to our wonderful Lord Mark of House Joseph, the Snow and Winterfell Rider of Maslakartha, whose artwork is showing up here, a white dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons, we also have a new piece of dragon art. We have art for Talarius, thanks to Ed Shear. And, of course, this dragon is ridden by Talanis the Talon, he is the King of Gagasos, rider of Talarius, featured here. He was a red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of midnight black. Art is underway also by Ed Shear for Jinx of House Lier, Green Queen of the Rainwood, rumored daughter of a Woods Witch, Woods Witch, <laughs> rider of Erogenia, a Sylphic albino dragon with amethyst eyes and opalescent wings. Can't wait to see what that dragon looks like. And of course, a man who is not afraid of dragons or dragon riders, first sword. Jeff Gnarly, the long snapper, first sword doesn't run, as we know. Although I doubt he would charge directly to Dragon's head like Jamie would. He certainly has the courage to do so, if the situation warranted. He thought he wasn't scared, but he hasn't seen Jinx's dragon yet. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you drinking today, Sean? Pretty much settled on this mix. I've tried a bunch of different things with the different naked drinks and sodas. 
But the the green protein one with green Mountain Dew, it's, it just has the most nutrients in it. The mm-hmm. other naked drinks, they have, like people have said, just have a lot of sugar. And they have a bunch of vitamin C and stuff, but I like the, the green protein one because it has protein. Let us get it going. It is time to head to the north. We talked about how the north... Not only is it in the story, is the Winterfell become a centerpiece because of that's where they think the war is going to go. They're bringing all the grain. Characters have converged there. Characters have converged there. And that's the thing. That is why we've been so flummoxed a lot of times trying to predict the order of things. We kind of had an idea how a lot of things would go. And we've been right about most things. A lot of things we've been surprised about and some things that we got wrong. So there's a lot of things going on there in it, but it's it's, it's all like we said. It, it, so much depends on what order characters come, and they and you can see why they're avoiding having everyone get there at the same time. Because just in this episode, we're going to talk about Arya's arrival, Sansa with Arya, Bran and Littlefinger, Mira and Bran, Arya and Bran, Arya, Bran and Sansa together, Brienne and Arya, Arya <laughs> and Littlefinger. I mean, imagine if if the Brotherhood was in the is in the mix. Imagine if yeah. John was still there. Imagine, you know, and, and they still don't have time for things like talking about Rickon, which I can get, like, you know, they didn't really want to talk about the horrible things that happened to them along the way. And you know. and also they probably do talk about it, but we just don't see that yeah. on the screen. It's not going to be as connected to the plot. There's enough emotions going around, etc. At the beginning of the scene, I detected kind of a, an interesting little parallel. The grain conversation between Sansa and Littlefinger and Walk, and they're walking around talking about the grain and... How she's not wanting to be too pushy about the grain. You know, it's just like a one line of dialogue. Mm-hmm. And then later in the episode, we have the the Reach, which isn't actually suffering yet because they haven't hit winter. You know, it's still really far south. Yet they're gra- yet, yet King's Landing is grabbing all the grain forcefully to withstand mm-hmm. a siege. And it's a totally different like leadership style. Even though the North has a greater need for it. They're still being friendlier about it. They're not forcing anyone. They're just being, you know, trying to explain why it's important and try to get people to agree with them rather than just you sending Braun to make sure it happens using violence. You know, which Braun wasn't happy about doing that, but I'm sure he did it. You know, it's his it's his job. So he's I definitely taking on jobs he didn't necessarily like or care about. He's just getting paid as long as he's getting paid. Yeah. So that's pretty neat. And uh, I want to give a shout out to Ashea, who is, of course, running production again. Sansa is one of her favorite characters. And it's sort of Ashea's birthday. She was born in Hawaii. So it's kind <laughs> of ambivalent, you know, the time change. She's kind of born late in the day. So technically in Hawaii, she's born on the 6th. But on, by Eastern Standard Time, arguably she was born on the 7th. So she gets to kind of have two birthdays. So happy double birthday to our favorite producer, Okay, so yeah, so the first scene we get is that awesome shot of Arya coming over the cresting the ridge there. And not the first shot, but one of the early shots. Real quick, shots. I wanted to say something in a more overview thing. Sure. A thought that I had about last week's episode was that it had several different, hugely momentous moments. It's the first time we saw Casterly Rock, and it was taken. It's the first time we saw Highgarden, and it was taken. Elena was killed. John and Danny meet for the first time. Each of these are like huge moments that could have had a whole episode building up to, but they were all in the same episode. And it was almost diluted how epic they were by having them all together. So many things, yeah. yeah. This episode, I feel like, had a similar amount of epic stuff. The, the battle was epic, and yes. the reunions in the North were epic. Maybe not quite on the same level as the last one, but uh, I say all this to point out how much I like this episode because... I did feel it was epic. I, I was overwhelmed. It was shorter. 
and less different things happened, but they felt more relatively important to me. I was blown away by this episode. I just yeah. want to say, like, I particularly like the first episode of the season. The last episode was good. I think this one's the best one. Right on. Okay, cool. Hidden, something obviously something we're going to talk about throughout, hidden throughout all the epicness and the action, there's a lot of subtlety. There's a lot of subtlety. Like, just for example, Dickon's little speech, it was really jokey. You know, they're making fun of him. But that was, there was a lot going on in that conversation. Yeah. Just stuff like that. And, and Tyrion's presence just upped the ante as far as the the, dra- the drama and the tension. And not not that he was in danger. But anyway, we'll get to all that. Let's yeah, there's one I don't want to forget to mention, the interaction between Randall, Jamie, and Bronn. Yes, another, another one. big one, yes. But for now, we're still in the north. And yeah, our uh, this is, they use some interesting tricks with sound and music here. When Arya is cresting the ridge and she sees Winterfell in the distance, there's this big, epic, like, homecoming music, very, like, dramatic and powerful. And the same thing as she's gazing around the Bailey. When she's just sitting there and those guards are arguing, she's just kind of looking around and smiling. And it's different for her. But she's happy to be there. But the music was a really big part of that. But then when she's in the crypt talking to Sansa, not any music at all. And then when she's in the Godswood talking to Bran with Sansa there, not a speck of music either. And... There's some other things that we'll get to as well, but those right off the top were a really big deal. And our co-writer Joe Buckley points out that Arya wasn't. There's a lot of things Arya is catching up on, and that's one of the things like they didn't have enough time to bring up Rickon and all that. And her entrance is a callback to King's Landing when she's coming out of the sewers and all dirty and trying mm-hmm. to get back into the castle. Yeah. And they're like, "Get the heck out of here!" <laughs> <laughs> you know, kind of like you were saying a minute ago, the, the moments of subtlety give more impact to the moments of action. That makes sense. When you just have action, 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 nonstop, it's just start to become numb to it. But when you present characters in their sort of more day-to-day, non-intense activities, when the intense activity comes, you're a little bit more blown away from it. And music can help with that, too. By yeah. having lulls in a moment, the swells in the music are more impactful. By having swollen music, silence can have an emotional impact on how you perceive a scene. They definitely use that as a tool of filmmaking. Absolutely, yeah. And it's throughout this episode, too, not just in, in these northern scenes. We'll keep coming back to that throughout. Um, yeah, so Sansa and Arya have their meeting. It's 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 good. You know, they're, I liked it. It was done differently than some of the other reunions, namely the difference in music. That was another big difference. Because um, when John and Sansa meet, there's this big music, you mm-hmm. know. And, of course, that gets mentioned. Sansa's like, oh, I'm so happy to see you. But, boy, when John sees you, his heart will stop. <laughs> I was like, oh, again. wait, again. again, yeah, again, <laughs> right? And the list, it's sa- same thing happens. Sansa is twice in a row. Bran's like, oh, I'm the Three-Eyed Raven now. And she's like, I don't know what that means. And then Arya's like, oh, my list. And Sansa's like, I don't know what that means. means. (laughs) (laughs) And when she finds out what it means, it's like, whoa, my siblings are powerful. What is going on? Uh, That's just a huge list. So she's, she's doing all this kind of mundane running the north, handling the grain situation, talking to people. And here are her siblings just totally just out of this world abilities. I think if Sansa hadn't been captured by Joffrey and then turned over to Ramsay, she'd be riding a dragon herself already. <laughs> or at least riding Lady. <laughs> <laughs> this is another this is another one that got us. We I know I suggested this possibility after we had our previews and theories exit uh, episode on Saturday, which went great again, by the way. It was a lot of fun to hang out. Just our our episodes are we're really trying to aim for this, just you know, we're all hanging out talking about the episode feel. We're not trying to be some big like news production of this is what happened on game of thrones that's you want to talk about game of thrones with your friends hey and we're all friends here friends and game of thrones friends and family and so i said to you afterwards like you know what we forgot to consider the most mundane thing possible just like they fooled us with 
little uh, with Liana's statue and John and Littlefinger down the crypt like, oh, it's a reveal, blah, blah, yeah. blah. And it turned out to be pretty much nothing. It's the same thing here. He just pulls the dagger out. Here you go. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> didn't mean, didn't consider, and we're, we're pretty good about considering the most mundane possible answer, and we totally missed that, you know, as far as recording goes. Especially given that we even talked about how Littlefinger will do favors. He's going to offer things up. Like, whether it's conniving or genuine, he's trying to ingratiate himself to yeah. the North. Well, there's just another way for him to do that. It's like a good play for him to make. I can't believe we didn't think You of did it. say you didn't buy him going to stab somebody. You did, I did You were say pretty that. adamant yeah. about that. So you were totally right. He did not go to stab anyone. And he's not going to be anytime soon. Now he's gave away his best dagger. <laughs> and I wonder something about that scene, though. It's interesting. Bran, you know, obviously immediately... Uh, when he heard the word chaos, was able to throw out chaos as a ladder. And Littlefinger's face was like, uh... That was what? a hot moment. That, that was, was really a hot good. moment. Littlefinger didn't know what was going on there. It threw him for a loop. But it is clear that he's trying, like you said, he's trying to ingratiate himself. He's trying to get in. And Bran, I wonder if Bran was toying with him. He said, do you know who this dagger belonged to? Yeah. And Littlefinger's like, no. And he's like, do you know who that dagger belonged to, Bran? Are you <laughs> holding back? And now the thing is, some people probably question why he doesn't just out Littlefinger right away. Well, the thing is, he's not Bran. He doesn't necessarily... He, there's some instincts, some some evidence that he still has some Bran in him. You know, there's some little tidbits, some little subtle things that show he's not entirely gone. But that's the thing. If he's not Bran, if he just remembers what Bran was like, he doesn't care about Bran's father either. He doesn't care yeah. about what happened to Ned Stark. That's not that important to him. Not only that, it might be a relatively smaller memory for him. He even said, I remember so much now, or I know so much now, something along that line. He, When he sees this dagger, he might have centuries and centuries of history flooding into his mind. Mm -hmm. When he said, you know who in this dagger, he might be talking about some ancient first man or something you know the what I mean? guy who drew it in sam's book right not necessarily the person who owned it like last year or whatever to brand that or to the three-eyed raven that might be relatively way less important it also this conflict of little finger might seem so minor what it's just beneath him to get mixed up in this trivial politicking of little fingers trying to get the whatever it, it just doesn't matter in his perspective of the history of the world and the coming of the night walker uh, white walkers the little fingers trying to capitalize on what people know which is that he loved catelyn like that's true you know he's not making that up and so it, it's not hard to believe that he would care for cat's descendants you know that's and that's so that's a good kind of good quote-unquote angle for him to try to sell whether he truly believes it or not i kind of doubt that he does but if he's going to actually help take care of Kat's family, that's a good deed, whether or not, you know, even if he has ulterior motives, which he probably, which he certainly does have ulterior motives. But still, Bran and Arya, you know, Arya already has this kind of bad feeling about Littlefinger. She's not happy with it. But other people are, you know, Sansa's in a more difficult spot. You know, she's got to deal with the politics of the situation. And if Littlefinger's just going to continue to ingratiate himself and make himself useful, it's even harder to get rid of him. You know, it's even harder to question his past if his yeah. future if his current value is positive so it's very tricky and i really wonder how they're going to handle it and we have a couple of comments here mark joseph the snow and winterfell says how amazing was it when brand said chaos is a ladder that was pretty awesome i mean we knew we we i was we definitely wondered what he was going to say to, to people like what's he going to say to aria what's he going to say to if he says something to Littlefinger, because of after what he said to Dollar's Head and Sansa, it was like something meaningful that they shouldn't know. It was like, oh, he's going to do that to everybody. Mm -hmm. What's it going to be? And we thought we focused more on what he said to Arya. And um, settling on the list was a pretty cool way to do that. Other, another comment from Jason Drisco. 
Bran appears to have made himself a target for Littlefinger by revealing that he knows a lot of things that should be secrets. Do you think Littlefinger's fall will be triggered by him trying to get rid of Bran? Well, I kind of thought that before this episode. Now this, this, this maybe, it's still on the table as an, as an option, I think. But something else funny happened in this episode. One, one of the shots of Littlefinger, he's standing there, and then there's this Graven call. Like this very distinct, it's one of the sound tricks I was talking about. And it still reminds me of this, plot that we dug up last episode about him being concerned or interested or curious about the the archives of Maester Lewin's letters. So that caw was like a reminder that, that that still may be in play. Going after Bran, I don't know if he can pull that. If he thinks Bran can see everything, how can he think that he could get away with that? Like, he's not, yeah. he's not, he's smart. You know, Littlefinger is very smart. It's possible that Littlefinger doesn't even know that Bran can see everything. Maybe, maybe it's obvious. Like, we already know it, so it seems like, oh, he know. But maybe he just thinks, whoa, this kid's got the same theory on the world as me. He really knows how to politics. <laughs> has he been Chaos talking to, ladder, has he been know? talking to Varys? Has he, he been talking you know? to Sansa? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who's he been talking to? You know. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not sure. I think it most likely he's at least registering a brand has some kind of powers, but it might be a little bit of a leap for us to assume that automatically. You know, I don't know that Littlefinger has been told this, and it's a pretty big jump to assume that just because he used a line that I used one time, he must have perfect psychic powers and knows all of history. You know, he doesn't necessarily know that Bran uh, knows everything. That's true, and maybe he'll that'll become clear. <laughs> yeah, at some point, you know, he's like, wait, does he know? Oh, he knows everything. Wow, he does know everything. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Buckley wants to know if um, we would have would have been nice, or says rather, would have been nice if we had some of the Northern Lords reacting to Bran. I think maybe they're just kind of keeping him a little bit of a secret. I mean, they know he's there and they know he's crippled, so maybe that's like, well, they're not going to push for him to rule. They've already nominated a king. No one's going to bother with that. Bran already said, situation. "I could never be the Lord of Winterfell." Yeah, right? so even if that came up, he's not interested. So we, I can imagine we might still get some of those reactions, but I feel more like they just, with that line of dialogue, moved past it. That's just not yeah. going to be an issue. Uh, we see a quiet, we have super chat from Alex Willer. Is Littlefinger in charge of the Riverlands in the show? No. He is the Lord of Harren. In the, in the books, he is Lord Paramount of the Riverlands and, and is Lord of Harrenhal. In the show, he's only Lord of Harrenhal. And the Vale. And the Vale, yes. No, I wasn't talking about the Vale at all, but yeah, in both, he in is both. Lord of the, okay. he is Lord of the Vale. Lord Protector of the Vale. Technically, Robin is right. Lord, but he's not, effectively, he can't serve as such. But it was mentioned that Littlefinger has declared for the North. Yes, and that's something I wanted to bring up, by the way, because that's something I have even specifically said in the past that Littlefinger's still Inca with Cersei as far as we know, right? He can go talk to her, but yeah, if he's declared for the (laughs) North specifically, that's a, a shift in how I was perceiving what was going on here. From Craig DeLulo, another super chat. Thanks, Craig. I think Rhaegar originally owned this dagger. It has a red ruby, and Rhaegar had red rubies on his armor, and it came from Robert Baratheon through Joff. Thoughts? Well, here's the thing. I think we we sort of touched on this on Saturday, I think, but I, there's no way to know for sure, but absolutely, if this was, you know, if they only had a few Valyrian steel daggers in the armory, then, yeah, Rhaegar would probably be aware of it. He would probably use it. You know, it's Valyrian steel. It's a nice weapon. It's a nice, you know, and everyone carries a dagger around, even even fancy princes. It cuts through bread so well. Yeah, it really, <laughs> really does. Yeah, <laughs> through that that tough bread that isn't made using hot pies correct methods. Yeah. You know, you need Valyrian steel to cut through that. So it's, it's, it's impossible to know, but I think it's very likely Rhaegar was aware of the dagger. He, he not unlikely used it, and that would be, you know, and Robert certainly wouldn't throw that away. You know, that's a yeah. nice little weapon. <laughs> and Joffrey would have just found it sitting there. It could have easily been forgotten about. You know, Robert stopped caring about such things and got overweight and didn't, didn't carry weapons around. <laughs> he may never, never have carried it around since, you know, he was king as soon as he won the war. But I like the idea of Rhaegar walking around with it. It makes sense. 
So we get more emphasis on how Bran has changed and more clarification on it and seeing it from another angle with somebody that he traveled with. Mira just was just ripping her heart out there just seeing that, you know, she did all this for him and she it's not and it's not that he's ungrateful. It's that he's not capable of it's that he's not he. Yeah, it's not he exactly. He's yeah. not him. Bran is grateful, but Three-Eyed Raven is, you know, a million, a billion souls all at once. <laughs> yeah. And you would still think the Three-Eyed Raven might be grateful, though. I get He did say thank you. <laughs> he did say thank you. That was, that was a really good scene. And by the way, Mira is an unsung hero of this show. Think about the the trials that she's been through. She doesn't get much airtime, but she's really been a champion. Uh, Super Jeff from Chris Foy, who's been friend-zoned worse, Jorah or Littlefinger? I don't think Littlefinger's even a friend, so I guess Jorah. <laughs> Littlefinger's just, just yeah. uh, I only talk to you because I have to. Littlefinger talks to the hand. Jorah's in the friend zone. Yeah, so, yeah. Just, Littlefinger's been pushed farther away, but Jorah's more in the friend zone. Snow and Winterfell says, Real quick, I hate that they were ignoring Robin Aaron. Yeah, it, it's, I guess there's not much to do with him. You know, it makes sense that he would stay in the Vale because he's, just a kid, and he's not made for war. You know, having him show up leading the Vale Knights would have been a little strange. You know, he's got that weak constitution. But it is a little odd that he's not being talked about. I wish every episode was an hour and a half and there were 18 episodes per season, and we did get to touch bases with all the different characters all over the place. But what are they going to do with Robin Aaron? How is he going to affect the plot anywhere? Yeah, I, I, think- I guess, you know what, as soon as I say that, I realize he might. He might do something crazy. He might just get a hair up his butt and decide, you know what, <laughs> screw that little finger guy. I'm going to throw someone through the moon door. <laughs> I'll be on Cersei's side. I mean, he could, but I, I don't think that's the direction they're going, right? Yeah, that would be like yeah. a random monkey wrench out of nowhere that I don't think that's what they're doing with I don't the show, think he so. li- has the legal authority to because of, he's like, because of his minority, he's in his minority. You know, and I think that's, Peter P- Peter has the like legal authority. I, I wouldn't need to go to this rabbit hole, but I think that, I don't even think he can do that if he wanted to. He could try. People might follow his orders because yeah. he's. It might be dangerous not to because yeah. eventually he will be old enough and you'll be first on the list. That's you know? absolutely true. And it's something they came up with Joffrey a lot. It was yeah. like, well, if I disobey him when he's in his minority, what happens when, is he going to get revenge on me when he turns 16? Like, like something that Tyrion and Sandor are both like thinking about. It is interesting the more we talk about it. Like I said, I would like to see scenes there. How is he being dealt with? Littlefinger was able to manage him. His mom was able to manage him. But who's managing him now? There's a bunch of like stiff old people. You don't that, want to know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Super chat from Dan S. No question. Just want to say keep up the great work. Well, thanks, Dan. We appreciate it. And we will certainly keep at it with all of our efforts. And moving on. Okay, so Mira. Mira, we were talking about... All right, we were trying to do another question and then super, uh, move forward, but another super chat. Thank you, Perry from Mexico. Do you think Bran might be one, the lone wolf who died while the pack sur- dies while the pack survives? Do kind we of- think Bran is already the lone wolf who died? Oh, Mira I see. Even said it. Yeah. That, I don't know right. if that's the question he no, meant, but that's what I'm thinking. I think that is what he meant. That does seem to be. Oh, the way died it's past tense. Yep, yep. Yeah, that is. Wow, that's a really that's deep. That's deep. <laughs> he kind of did. Yeah, because they're not with him. He's not really part of the. He's not part of the pack. He's like some sort of pack deity he's like a deity <laughs> sitting over the pack the pack needs to protect him or you know maybe they, they all die but another super chat from alex willer if you were danny would you marry robin <laughs> i don't know i don't i think she would maybe have to consider it but i think that would be farther down the list of options i think it's better to marry john and if especially if the veil is subservient to the north which they are at this point because john got killed or refused to bend the knee and they had to war against each other uh, yeah I, I still don't think danny i would still would. wait a while to see if he comes back again like john's <laughs> dead but like i still don't just jump to marry robert <laughs> so yeah so mira's just super sad and she says you died in that cave like she really just spells it out for us in case it wasn't clear at this point you died yeah. in the cave and brand doesn't exactly say no he's like 
she's got no response to that, you know. And he points out, he's like, I have memories of Bran aren't really that different than just everyone else's memories are now in his head. He's like, yeah, I know what it was like to be Bran, but those are just one out of millions of different sets of memories I have that I that aren't like personally attached to me. It's really hard to put into perspective, you know. Joe Buckley says, to me, it seemed like Bran has reached where we all thought he eventually would, but I feel like I've missed an episode somewhere or something. We missed the actual point where Bran changed from Bran to this thing. Yeah, it kind of happened off screen. It did kind of happen, like, in between him screwing up and getting that mark and fleeing where he was yelling about, he touched me, he touched me, in between being dragged out of that cave and getting to the wall, that's, he's become this, yeah. And it is a story that I suspect the books would be able to do a little better. It's, and the books are a better medium for that. It's a very yeah. internal story. If there was an exact moment when it happened, we might have seen it. There are several moments when it could have been. Yeah. When, the three, it, with, when within the vision, the three-eyed raven was killed in real life, and in the vision he kind of like scattered into a bunch of birds. Do you remember yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Like that might have been the moment right there when Bran became the three-eyed raven. Even if there was an exact moment when it happened, it still might have been a slow transition for it to absorb his psyche or whatever, you know. And I think we did see that off screen. But I think it happened before they got to Winterfell. I think we saw Mm, it the first time he spoke at the gates there, you know. We might have even, if you look back at it, kind of see Amira's eyes all along. She, I think she has been traveling with him this whole time. She's already seen that he's gone, you know? Yeah, she and, and now it's just confirmed. She might have had this hope that when he gets back home and he sees his family mm-hmm. and that hope is just... Or that will come out of it a little bit. Yeah, you're yeah. right. That's a great point. Like, maybe that she was waiting to see how he reacted to being with family and it didn't change. It didn't, didn't even bat an eye. Yeah. Um, and clearly she's tried to been supportive you know what i mean to to understand what he's going through but finally she breaks down in this moment it's yeah. a really good performance it's it, a really good yeah scene. it really was she she looks like she's gonna get very little this might be her this might be it for her this whole season we maybe if we, i hope not yeah i we hope might see, we follow her down to the river yeah river. i mean she says she's gonna be with her family which is a good reason to get excited i mean that's that, that ups the chance that we see howland reed even though i kind of doubt it'll be this year it could be and whether it's this year or not i'm i'm you know i'm hopeful that we'll get it in one way or another so that's cool and you're right she totally nailed it as, as far as the acting goes yeah and she just can't get past it she can't get it's just so emotional so like she can't she can't have his perspective just as much as we can even though she's a lot closer to it it still just doesn't fit her worldview like how can you not feel these things how can you not experience them you're you're living and breathing and your name is brand he's like i'm not though you know it's like she just, it's hard for her to grasp that. It's hard for us to grasp that. Okay. Um, let's talk about Arya and Bran. Big deal here. This emotional contrast is very different. Sansa Arya versus Sansa and Bran was similar but different. The meeting of Sansa and Arya was, had emotion in it. At first, they kind of kept their cool, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? But eventually, they hug and they relate and they, they, you, you, you at least can tell they're holding back some negative emotions, right? But yes. with Arya, with Sansa and Bran and Arya and Bran, when they hug, he just has this stone face. Uh, <laughs> what did I say? Thousand eyed stare. <laughs> yes, thousand eyes in one. That's right. Perfect. <laughs> and this whole thing with the dagger. This was interesting. Um, you know, it makes sense that Bran would give it to Arya. He doesn't need it. And Arya is now armed against the White Walkers, even though she hasn't heard of them yet. That she's one character. That's one. Not only has Rickon not been mentioned to her yet. Presumably, although I can see that being mentioned off screen, but no obvious reference to the White Walkers have been made to her and yet, you know, and she hasn't been there long. Break her in slowly, give her all the bad news slowly, you know. <laughs> that is one thing I think we will see a conversation about because I think it'll be a plot point. She still has it in her mind if she wants revenge. She still has her list, you know what I mean? It's yeah. still a mm-hmm. prominent part of her character. So she 
ostensibly needs to be convinced to abandon that and worry about the true threat. Yeah, totally. And I see we, we had a comment from Acre Frey, Lord of the Chicken Dance, wondering about how Arya recognized Valyrian steel. Well, she she would have been familiar with ice, her father's sword, which should have the same look to it. The blade should have that same kind of quality of color, dark, kind of dark, smoky color, black almost. She spent time with Gendry. He might have talked about blacksmithing metal yeah, stuff, you know. That's possible. She's maybe. also the... We saw the Stark kids being educated. That might have been a thing. Yeah, it might have just been a part of their education. That's true. Maester Lewin had a Valyrian steel link even in his chain. Arya's been around, you know. Yeah. So what they gave us with Bran's reveal about Arya was that he also, in addition to knowing about her list, which Arya was... She wasn't very freaked out, but she did look at Sansa like, how the hell did he know that? You know, she, she was confused more than stunned. And she's seen things. She's seen more magical things than Sansa has. She's seen face changing and all sorts of queer things like that that shouldn't be. So she's a little more, a little less likely to be surprised by something like that. She's seen a gigantic direwolf, you know, and all sorts of things. She hasn't seen a... Something I pointed out on Twitter, which is bound to change... Bran, you could you could argue Bran has seen dragons and White Walkers, but he hasn't seen them up close. He's seen them in his visions. John's the only one who's seen both a White Walker and a dragon at this point, to this state. So he's kind of unique in that regard. For now. <laughs> that's bound mm-hmm. to change. But for now, that's something. Arya, uh, Joe Buckley says that Arya, this said that as far as he's gone through the other side, he must still have some connection to humanity to even think about giving it away and who could use it. That's a good point. The fact that he's even... If he's so far gone from humanity, the dagger would just—he would just like maybe just not even think about, it. just like I don't know, this is nothing. It's a worthless trinket. I can't use it. The fact that he actually considers giving it away and gives it specifically to her, his sister, who—it's his sister. You know, if he's really not Bran, then that's just some random girl to him, right? So I think that's a good point. There and there are other proofs of this. Like it's not just that. I don't think he's necessarily lost all his humanity. I think that he just isn't having the emotional reactions we expect from. Grant, because these are mm. personal relationships and yeah. reunions that he's going through coldly. But it doesn't mean he doesn't care about humanity or doesn't have sadness in him. He just doesn't have the specific sadness that we're expecting to see here. And it's entirely possible that that if he... And we're not going to see this kind of long term, I don't think. But if Bran were to be the three-eyed raven for a long time, he would regain some of his humanity. He would get used to his powers. Maybe not. Maybe he would go more in the other direction. But the three-eyed raven talked to him like a human being. Talked to Bran like a human being. He was like... He had some emotion in his voice. He wasn't just a robot like, this is what you have to do to save the world. I mean, he was, you know, he had he had more humanity than Brand is showing here. If we get 20,000 views, we'll do a whole episode of Robot Voices. <laughs> <laughs> ah, there's no one wonderful says, or maybe he knows Arya will need it because he's seen what she can do. Ah, okay. That's an alternate theory that I really like. Maybe, yeah, maybe it's not, it has nothing to do with family or any connection. It's like, she is important. And like I said, that was the first thing I said, is she's now armed with Valyrian steel to fight the, yeah, the White Walkers. Yeah. Maybe uh, <laughs> maybe that's what he was doing. It's like, you're a powerful fighter. I'm going to arm you. You need to have the uh, weapon. You know, of all the people, you're one of the ones who should have a Valyrian steel dagger. And then she immediately shows that she knows how to use it. The fighting with Arya. With Bran. Arya fighting with Brienne, yes, rather. And and we get a little bit before that, we get Podrick. I liked that little moment of Brienne and Pod where Pod's trying to compliment her and she's like, hey, thank you, Pod. She takes it right. You know, yeah. she takes. she's like, yeah. okay, you, you, I, I see what you're doing here. Hey, <laughs> Pod knows what she's about to say. She's probably said it to him 30 times, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? But he, she's recognizing his persistence, maybe recognizing her actual role at this point, you know. I love his facial reaction to that too. When she, when she starts to like get frustrated, he looks up at her quizzically, like, 
oh, she's about to say something important. Like, not like, uh-oh, I, what did I say? I'm bracing for it. He's just like, I'm about to be schooled. Yeah. You know, and then when she says that, he's like, you know, he like nods and smiles. And it's like he's just like ready to learn, you know, <laughs> even though he just got his butt kicked in the training yard. Or I guess that's actually later. He's just getting his butt kicked, you know, every day. He's yeah, learning yeah. to fight. And that's, that's important. He's learning to fight. Like, clearly he needs it. It'll make us believe it more when he fights well later on. Sure, he'll be seeing a battle and he fights in it and he'll do a good job. And- yeah. Joe Buckley points out the, the parallel here that Littlefinger points out the oath to Cat. And then Arya does the same to Brienne, says, you took an oath to Cat, you know, both of the daughters. And she's like, and Brienne wasn't hesitating because I don't want to train with you, little girl. She's like, uh, because you're not beneath me. She's like, I'm afraid of hurting you. I don't want to hurt you. Yeah. Yeah. And then Arya shows what she can do. And then Brienne starts to take it more seriously, kicks her, you know, and is like, oops, wait, did I go too far? And Arya jumps back up ready and she's like, all right. And then they're having fun. That's when we get this shot where, which is, I love the shot when they just are smiling. They both enjoy this. They both enjoy the Song of Swords, as it's called in the books. And it, it's a callback to Sirio. When, when she's getting when she's getting good, dueling with Sirio, she's got a smile on her face at all times. She's really happy. She exalts in her skills. And while this is happening, there's even another callback. While they're training, Sansa and Littlefinger are looking down at them, which is a callback to se- Season 1, Episode 1, right at the beginning. Catelyn... And Ned looking down on the Stark kids training. Yeah. And it's Arya is the one who's the most impressive even then because the boys are watching and Bran is having trouble with the archery. And then Arya does her amazing shot and smiles because she's so good at it. And uh, that's what we're talking about. You can't have six years of callbacks. You can't have a callback to when a child actor was an actual child instead of a teenager. Yeah. Like, you know, and that's just, that's just something special about that, that only long-running shows can do that. I will say there was some... There's a part of me that, that is always frustrated with how fights are presented on film. And it's just very unrealistic. There's just this weight thing. You know, like when Brienne says, your little sword's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's just not heavy enough. Never mind the, the weight difference in these two characters. But one sword would just knock the other out of the way. She might be able to, like, slightly divert. But she's, like, straight up pairing. It's a little unrealistic, you know. But the thing is, the scene was so good. They really pulled some emotion out of me in that last moment when it kind of smiled at each other that... Especially when I considered that they maybe could have done the choreography in a different way that would have made more sense, but it wouldn't have been as entertaining. Unforgiving. I know there are going to be some people out there complaining about that because I'm one of them, but I'm totally forgiving because the scene was so good aside from that. Super chat from Grand Admiral Bendu. Nice name, by the way. <laughs> Will Arya take Brienne with her to King's Landing to fight the mountain while she goes after Cersei since she's bound to both Stark girls? Ooh, that's interesting. I have a feeling that after a time, it's going to be clear that Brienne should be around Sansa, because Sansa is a ruler with no martial abilities, whereas Arya seems to be able to take care of herself, especially if Arya plans on sneaking in to King's Landing in disguise. She can't be with anybody else. No one can disguise themselves like Arya. Arya kind of is a solo mission type person, I would think, at this point. But Brienne would probably want to be like, wait, shouldn't I be with you? But I think with this this training sheen is going to set up the fact that Arya is, you know, handling it. (laughs) Brienne has already twice had to accept the fact that her help's not wanted. You know what I mean? I think yes. she could do it again. So, it looks like there's about 600 people in the chat right now, along with us. That's awesome. Thanks everybody for joining us. And you know, it's it's fun. Like a lot of times, we're all hanging out. We're having we're having our conversations. And while this is happening, it's a bunch of different conversations are happening in the chat box. People talking about all kinds of theories and fun and just having a good old time. So, I highly recommend at least checking out the chat experience, the live experience. 
even I know it's hard for you sometimes to to make these, but that's why you do a few a week. Definitely check it out and uh, see what it's all about. As as far as Littlefinger and Sansa watching, Littlefinger kept kind of look casting, you know, looking at Sansa to see what her reaction was, but she wouldn't look back at him. And he looked at her twice, you know, like, wow, look at art, like art is impressive. Like he was like, whew. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. but Sansa was breathing heavily. She was like, she didn't quite understand what was happening in the crypt. And she knew something like, Ari must've really been through some stuff. What's that deal with this list and all. Then she actually sees her capability. She's like, holy crap. My young teenage sister is holding her own against Brienne. Like that is just stunning. Right? Like, Wow. I, I'm still trying to interpret what was going through Sansa there because she, right off the bat, I would say was somewhere between interested and concerned when it was just unfolding underneath. Like, oh, what's going on down there, you know? Yeah. But by the end of it, she was somewhere between concerned and upset and, and borderline stormed off, you know what I mean? So I can't decide it. Was she worried about Arya's safety, maybe? Mm-hmm. Like the idea, worried that Brienne would entertain this combat with with uh, Arya Worried what trouble Arya's going to get into, especially if Sansa's trying to be more politically minded. And Arya might be a wild card. Wild card. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, nice. (laughs) I'm really excited to see how this continues to fold out, and I hope we get some insight into what's going on in Sansa's mind there. You know what's interesting? This kind of struck me. A couple people have mentioned the parallels here, and and we've had a couple mention that maybe she's a little jealous, that Sansa's a little jealous that Arya is as capable. And it reminds me of Cersei. Sansa's becoming more and more like Cersei. Not that I ever think she'll be like Cersei, but she's learned from Cersei. She's been around Cersei, so of course Cersei can have an impact. Cersei has always resented the fact that she wasn't taught how to fight because she was resented that she was born a woman and thus wasn't taught how to fight and resents that. So if that's a parallel, maybe Sansa is resenting the same thing as look how good she is at a fight. I don't know. Not not that the, not that she's resents not being able to fight, but she resents. That power that comes with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, uh, her character maybe has changed, especially the life she's lived. Maybe she wished she was more physically capable. But what seemed to be part of her early character was not to be concerned with that at all. Does that yeah. make sense? Mm-hmm. And she, again, was naive and has grown up a lot. But at that time, on some level, she wanted to be a princess and do the things that a princess would do, right? But some of those things might also include some politicking, which Cersei gave her some guidance on. And... Yeah, I, th- I think it's not so much that she wants to be more physically capable, but she's. it might feel like a threat to her power. Uh, it might even be subconscious in Sansa to feel this. It, I don't know if jealousy is quite the right word, but yeah. if Arya can prove herself as a warrior, she might be more accepted by the other Northmen than Sansa. Right? Uh, yeah, that's true. It all, here's another angle to it, too. It's, it's thinking about what Sansa knows about Arya. If Sansa's memories of Arya are this, like, Wild, uncontrolled girl throwing an orange at the feast, you know, at her yeah. with the king and queen just right there, disobeying their parents. It's like, so she sees this, this this girl who never fell in line, who always did her own thing, and now she's a badass warrior too. So it's gonna be even harder to stop her from doing like if, if she's yeah. like sitting there with Littlefinger, like, okay, I don't want to kill Littlefinger because we need him. Arya hates Littlefinger. She's already staring up at her, like staring up at Littlefinger, like giving him the eye, and Littlefinger's like bows, and Arya just keeps staring at him, like, I know what you're about, you know. And Sansa's like. Don't kill Littlefinger, at least not yet. You know, yeah. like don't mess yeah. with things. Like this is a delicate balance. It isn't just about us getting revenge. So Arya might not have any patience for that. She may be more like John, which is makes sense. That she just on some care. level, she's gonna Sansa, do what she needs to do. It might even be registering Sansa's mind that uh, this is another piece for Littlefinger to play with. You know what I mean? Someone mm. that can be turned against her, or someone Littlefinger could ingratiate himself to that will make it tougher for Sansa. So. Hmm. You know, Bronzeman captain before, too. He's a good... And he could have interactions with Tyrion. With Tyene, yeah. Tyene and Tyrion. Yeah, different. It's uh, 
Tyrion's not as good looking as Tyene, but uh, Tyrion <laughs> has maybe more to offer in terms of a future. <laughs> like, say, well, we'll get to that. I have say, a lot to say about Bronn's future. <laughs> yeah, like a future period. Yeah. <laughs> so we said that, yeah, Arya doesn't know about the White Walkers yet, and that'll be interesting. You know, that's what she's maybe training for. This fight against Brienne, against the toughest fighter around, might be training for dueling a White Walker later down the line, something like epic in season eight, something like that. I wouldn't expect that to be soon. But hey, that's what we could be looking for. And yeah, I do think that the, there'll be some, they're kind of toying with us with regards to Littlefinger, but with, but Arya giving him the eye, I think might, might mean we're seeing a little more where this plot might be headed. But she also has to learn about John. you know, when John comes yeah. back, I don't know, maybe he won't go straight to Winterfell. Maybe he goes straight to Eastwatch. Maybe that's going to be delayed for a while. Well, there's a reason these next couple episodes are longer, you know, we should yeah. get some of this unfolding. Yeah, I mean, that's the big, that, that, that's probably the biggest reunion possibility that we've had this season so far is those two, right? Sansa and John was huge. Arya and Sansa is huge. Bran and everyone is huge. But Sansa, John, I mean, sorry, Arya, John, those two, like, loved each other the most, you know, out of all the sibling pairings. Yeah, they were the, the, they were the most connected to each other and did the most traveling. Yeah, with the ex- possible exception of John and Rob, which isn't happening. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and here we go from the Snow and Winterfell. I totally think Littlefinger recognized Arya from Harrenhal in that moment. Oh, yeah. Michael Watson said, the actor who plays Littlefinger said he definitely recognized Arya at Harrenhal. Okay, oh, well, there right. we go. Thank you for that clarification. So we know for sure. That's a great catch. That totally slipped by us. Okay. So what is he going to make of that? He's like, whoa, Arya was, in, was hiding there, pretending to be a serving girl with Tywin. Like, his estimation of her just went way He saw her fighting, and then he sees that. Wow. That's amazing. Yes, thanks, Shea, for cracking the whip. Melanie Patrick points out production is a tough job. you got to keep us in line here. We're all over the place. (laughs) Okay, keep the questions coming. We will keep the progress going. Lots happening here. Uh, I think that may cover it for now for the North. We'll certainly have more to say about it on Wednesday. Some book-to-show crossovers plus anything that we missed that we will add into it. Shout out to... Our blood rider, Koho Koei, who has registered another kill. This time, Sunpiercer has fired a grayscale-infected arrow at a man named Galadon Longscar, intending for him to suffer a slow and painful death at the hands of grayscale. Also, thanks to our sellsword captains, who I'm honoring today, I think out of the normal order, because I loved the mention of the Golden Company so much that... I wanted to make sure that we had an on-point shout-out that fit nicely. And I think we have a new one anyway, so that's a cool. we got a new guy in there. So thanks to Peter Blaze of the Emerald Isle, Captain of the Werewood Wanderers, to Long Lives, Quick Deaths, Cold Beer, and Warm Women. Dagron, Marshal of the Axe, Captain of the Red Tide, motto, Resistance is Futile. Garion Pike is wielder of Grave Embrace, a Valyrian Steel Axe, Captain of the Iron Wave, whose motto is Iron's Kiss is Eternal. Chiron Calsbane, captain of the Stone. Sounds like the Lannisters could have used a guy named Calsbane right about <laughs> right about last episode. Their motto is the torrent breaks upon the stone, and they are the stone shields. Captain Kithic Deadeye of the Scarlet Longbows, pierced by darkness. Kerbuchard, captain of the Walking Drum, motto Yol Bolson, which is May There Be a Road. Lady Lazara Dajo is the Iron Lily, Master Archer, Castellan of the Summer Island Keep Arboreal Point, Captain of the All-Female Wailing Widows, Women and Children First, and Cody the Crimson, Bastard of Bracken, ha- Captain of the Red Waste, Exiles, and Recruiter of the Free Folk, and our newest, Cameron the Hammer of Hornwood, Captain of the English Lions, with the motto, Honor is the Reward of Virtue. 
And the Whispering Children, formerly commanded by Hema Helminth, are without a commander. What are we going to do about that? I don't know. But Hema Helminth has moved on to leading Ashea's Queen's Guard. Okay. Also, this time of year, I love to remind people of how awesome Audible is. This is not just a pitch for us to make a little money. I use Audible. I use it for the audiobooks. In fact, I tweeted as we were getting ready for this episode, as we were setting up, Instead of the usual recent listening to Daenerys and the Targaryens, which we still are doing constantly, I had the World of Ice and Fire going because I wanted to refresh myself on Aegon's conquest, the Field of Fire, and how Aegon dealt with using his dragons. He was hesitant to deploy them for a lot of the same reasons. He didn't want to just get this reputation as just burning everyone. He didn't just start off by trying to burn everyone down and do that. He tried to let people bow to him first and then moved in with the heavy artillery, meaning his dragons. So a lot of really cool parallels there. Highly recommend it. The World of Ice and Fire is amazing. And there's a lot of other parallels in there as well. If you want to check it out, you can get it for free along with another free download. Audible has two free downloads that you can get if you take the trial. It's a one-month trial. And at the end of that month, you can cancel it if you don't like it and you will have paid zero. So two free audiobook downloads because you get to keep them even if you cancel. Get The World of Ice and Fire. Maybe get Game of Thrones. Maybe trick out... One of the Duncan Egg stories, which are read by Harry Lloyd, who is Viserys, and his reading voice is fantastic. So a lot of great ways to, to do that. You can go to historyofwesteros.com, find the audible.com link on the right sidebar there, and enjoy. By the way, again, another shout out to our host, Acast, who is, who is one of the only, if not the only, podcast host out there that allows images to be uploaded as part of an audio file. So our audio-only episodes get uploaded with attached images that you can scroll through on your podcast player, on your phone, on your, you know, on the browser, anything you'd like. So it's pretty fun to act, be able to associate the images with your visual podcast. Sometimes we put maps up, and, and during the TV season, it's typically just shots of, of the characters or certain scenes. A lot of fun stuff like that. Sometimes it's East wearing no shirt. <laughs> we have not done that. Don't worry. Yes. To, I, I, we're trying to make people want this. <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> Okay, so looks like we got okay. So yeah, let's talk about let's talk about Dragonstone more. This is this is a really fun scene. We'll start off with some of the simpler stuff. Just Danny and Masande talking about Grey Worm, like what happened there? Hey, what happened there? And um, but then uh, we get John coming up saying, "Hey, check out the cave. We got cool stuff in the cave." But before the actual cave, I want to talk about just a few. There were some nice, funny moments. Th- th- these Dragonstone dialogue scenes have done a really good job of mixing interesting subject matter with subtleties, with humor just thrown in there, here and there. Davos has said a lot of serious things, but he's also done a lot of comic relief with his titles. In this case, he's like, that's King Snow. That doesn't sound right. King John? Uh, <laughs> 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 that's really funny. But not not even as remotely as funny as John saying, how many men do we have up at the wall? You know, 10,000? Less? Yes. <laughs> Fewer. Uh, Stannis makes his presence known even several seasons later. That was so funny. The fewer reference, great. That's just uh, we're gonna all be suffering for the next few weeks. People are gonna be making fewer jokes all over the place. I uh, hope they make more jokes. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> a, f- a super chat from Gildor Inglorian. Looks like from Canada. Thank you, Gildor. Uh, how long do winters last in Planetos on average, or are and are seasons magical? Seasons are absolutely magical. George has been unequivocal about that. And he even said that we will, in the books, get an answer on why. So, or at least some sort of answer. Not a full answer, but some inkling as to why. And the there is no average. Um, maybe, it, well, there would be an average, I suppose, but they vary greatly. And the longer the winter, or the longer the summer, the longer the winter. And as, yeah. as it's been said at the beginning of the series, in season one, it's been a particularly long summer. 
like nine to ten years, which means the winter is expected to be, you know, at least five, six, or equally long, which is difficult to conceive of. <laughs> but there you go. So, yes. So maybe more like, I guess like a typical winter is more like a year or maybe even just six months or even two years, maybe somewhere in the six month to two year range. But this is not going to be an average winter. I've also wondered or supposed that within a 10 year summer, there's probably still some range. There's probably some warm, some, some, sometimes it's closer to fall or spring than the mid heat of summer and winter probably doesn't just instantly start totally frozen you're going to go through some cooling already we see everyone dressing warmer even though everything isn't covered in ice you know mm. okay so Daenerys and john in the mine here's a fantastic shot of the white walkers cave painting yeah shay's gonna bring this image up of the cave painting here in a minute we've loved to joke about how those weren't there john just drew them real quick <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> brought in. Yeah. Just like, look, look at these cave paintings. No, look how amazing these ancient cave paintings are. <laughs> not only is John not the type to do that, but of course, there's a lot of other reasons why they wouldn't have. But it's hilarious. I love, I love that joke. It's Davos did it, not John. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Davos. Yeah. You know what a conniver he is. <laughs> <laughs> so much obsidian. So cool. I like the shot. It's really pretty. Um, the obsidian was kind of less spectacular than the cave paintings because that kind of took center stage. But the obsidian was awesome too. A uh, patron, Lady Nightwind, points out that the last time John was in a cave with a woman and bent the knee, everyone had a great time. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It developed into a real-world relationship for John. Hey, so if you bend the knee here, it might make um, Rose Leslie unhappy, but maybe you'll end up dating Amelia Clark in real life. You know, who knows? Who knows? You know, that's that's the pattern we've seen so far. One for one. So that's clearly enough data. <laughs> and Danny, Danny was legitimately awestruck here, wasn't she? Yeah, I thought that was a... In general, I thought that the whole cavern was impressive, you know, it was beautiful, and I can imagine it being a sight to take in, but it registering in her mind that these ancient, you know, things of legend not only seem to have been real, but she's standing on the same spot they would have been, you Mm. know, she seemed really impressed with the idea that, wow, the... Children of the Forest, right here where I'm standing, drawing on this cave. She was really, which probably helped John's case a little bit. It seemed that she seemed to care about this, mm. you know. So as he takes her through the story that he's discovered on this wall, she's buying it, you know. Mm. Nancy Groth, another super chat. Thanks, Nancy. Was Davos hitting on Melisande? Triangle with Grey Worm. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's funny. You know, it's it could have come up. If that comes up, John will have a comeback to, what do you think of, what do you think of her? Who do you mean? I think you know exactly <laughs> what I mean. She has a good heart. You've been staring at her heart quite a lot. That was hilarious. And yeah, maybe John could be like, well, you've been talking to Masande a lot. Like, you should, you know, maybe maybe the queen, king and queen get together and the two, like, hands, you know, Masande isn't a hand, but, you know, the two, like, second in commands get together. <laughs> I think he might maybe just be generally intrigued yeah. by her character. Yeah. Maybe relating, like, he's been in a position where he is a uh, interpreter, if you will, to a leader who's tough to follow. You know, I think his position with Stannis and maybe even with John is very similar to Miss Sunday's position with Danny. Very true. And he might also just be uh, coming back to Dragonstone here with this new cast of characters. He wants to get to know them. Did he ever have a daughter? He had multiple sons, he, right? He, he's no word of him having a daughter. In the books, he has a lot of sons. He has more than he has in the show. So he has a wife. His wife is still yeah. alive. I wonder if it's a stretch that he this is the daughter he never had. His <laughs> other children are all dead. I'm not sure. Okay, like he sees her as like a daughter figure. Yeah, but they, they have seemed to bring to light. Now, again, maybe it's just relative airtime. There's less characters, so the ones less are going to get more airtime. Yeah. But they do seem to be developing a rapport between these two characters. Hmm. Yes. 
interesting thing about this speech, a lot of things to talk about. Joe Buckley wanted you to weigh in on the filmmaking aspect and pointed out that the, the way they were carrying the torch and the way it was being guided around and the way it was lighting her face versus lighting the walls, there was some interesting kind of storytelling there. And he, he also mentioned that's something that Ash also caught, which was the, the similar theme to Jurassic Park. It was a music yeah, that, was, yeah. that was really similar to Jurassic Park, and which is cool because of cave paintings, you know, dinosaurs, cave paintings. Eh, yeah, that's a loose connection. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a lot of detailed knowledge about how lighting works, but I'm sure that was a, a challenging scene to film, you know. Yeah, it was kind yeah. Of close quarters with fire, you know, never mind the lighting, we're just managing the fire in there, which <laughs> was another thought that I had is that this is fire. This is Danny. This is John with Danny. You know, it, when John's in the north, he's surrounded by ice and snow. But when he's down there with Danny, here we got a flame. And it's also symbolically he's showing her the light. You know what I mean? Uh, the, the the truth here is being revealed. So this this conversation between John and Danny, it really felt a lot like me to the the pact. The, the ancient arrangement between the first man and the children where they met on the Isle of Faces and the first men agreed to stop burning down the Weirwoods and, the, and the, they divided up the territory. The context of that legend is different than what we're seeing here. But it, but of course, this is a legend, a, a mythical time from thousands of years ago before there were any real records. So, of course, the real story is going to differ from what, we're, what, the, what the legend tells us. And this might have been related. You know, maybe this is why the first men and the children came together was to fight the walkers, even though the children created the walkers. This isn't what they intended. They didn't intend the walkers to do what they did. This is not the weapon they intended to unleash. Or there's factions within the children, and some of the children were intended this, and others were like, this is not what we wanted. There could be factions within the White Walkers, too. Yes, also true. And in fact, there's a slight hint of that. I don't think this is what they were going for, but that image of the Night King... In the etching there, he had a beard, which, by the way, I'm offended by the, <laughs> the fact, the idea that, that the old Night King had a beard and this current one doesn't. What is up with that? Is this anti-beardism? Maybe it's like a Benjamin Button thing. He's like aging backwards and the beard is <laughs> retracting. So this is, uh, we're soon he's going to be baby Night King. <laughs> he won't be so fearsome if that's the case. Maybe it's a different Night King. Maybe a different leader has taken over. It over certainly time. occurred to me like, as well. We've seen a couple of Night... Uh, White Walkers be killed, you know, so maybe at some point the leader was killed and a new leader took over. And we've seen bearded White Walkers. That's not like right? this isn't the first. Yep. Yeah, thing like that. So really, really interesting. Now, so there's these other etchings that have the patterns. We're going to take a closer look at those on Wednesday. There's just not enough time to analyze those now. And we want to let we kind of want to float it out there to see what everybody else thinks, because it's, it's not something that we have immediate slam dunk answers on like what is going on with those pat parallels and patterns and, and everything it's really curious i like this other bit even though it maybe doesn't make perfect sense for masande to be so to be so unconfused about bastardy you know she's she wasn't confused about it but she said the concept doesn't apply i think she was sort of being nice there because she 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 speaks you know a ton of languages she she knows what bastardy is yeah yeah <laughs> she wasn't she was but she was at you know so i think this was sort of like being courtly and being like be flattering them a bit i mean like this is you know telling john that you know i don't see any i don't look on you look down on you at all yeah for that. she might know what it is but she was brought up in a culture where that wouldn't have been looked down on yes so she has a different take on what a bastard is even if she has become aware of different cultures through her life what she grew up with would not judge John for this. And, and of course, that's, you know, maybe them being sneaky about the idea of a bastard being king and all that and John yeah, being yeah. that. It might just be like just setting some groundwork for that. I'm, I'm a little suspicious of that in a good way. <laughs> so we'll have to see where they're going with that. Then we have 
Theon showing up, which was... It's from the way time has passed, it seems like Theon took some time. He didn't just get lost and then find his way to Dragonstone finally after all this. It seems that he maybe had some thinking to do. Maybe he and his his men, who don't respect him too much, were like, well, what do we do now? Uh, maybe they started heading back to the Iron Islands, or maybe they just didn't know what to do. Maybe they camped out somewhere, and finally Theon's like, I want to get Yara back. That's it. I got it. And so they've had some conversations offline, maybe after he saw how he was treated, had some time to think about it. We talked about what else Theon might have to do. Seems like this is where they're going. Theon is going to go to try to rescue Yara. Maybe that's going to be where the Ironborn plot heads from now on. I don't know what else they might do with it. It seems like everybody else is doing things. They're in their place. And it seems like Theon sliding in there to help doesn't really fit. It seems like he's doing his own thing now. This is one of those things that I know I'll have more thoughts on later in a week. Mm -hmm. Right? It was sort of a footnote of this episode. A lot of other big things happened. And oh, by the way, Athena's going to go get Yara. And it's not as tied into the rest of the stuff. So my mind hasn't put all together. I I know how I work. I know how it goes when we do this this first video less than 24 hours or after we saw the episode, three days from now, I'm like, oh, 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 I'm going to come up with a bunch of more stuff. So. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, and that, they, like you said, that other guy, you know, they had that, they showed that other Ironborn character who was in the, um, they showed him in the previously on. I, th- I feel like we saw him last season, too. I might be misremembering. I, I should investigate it a little further. But I feel kind of like Royce. This is a character they keep putting in front of us. I feel like he's going to have some sort of a role. He might be. He might be, yeah, like Theon's. If Theon goes off and does his own stuff, hopefully there's at least one or two other people that have names and faces that are involved in this plot besides Euron, Yara, and him. Okay. Um, any other, if we, unless we have other questions about Dragonstone, or actually, I did have a, a few other things about this. Wanted to mention the soft music and that comes up during their scene with Danny and John. It's another use of music that's really powerful. When Danny and John are having their – Danny's like, okay, we'll just kneel and we can do this. You know, like it, we need to be united for this. And he still won't kneel. And this is a parallel to Mance Raider, isn't it? Yes, yes. That's, that's the thought that I had was that John is trying to do the same thing now. Wait, is John trying to do it or Danny? I don't know. Stannis was trying to get Mance to bend the knee. Yeah. And Mance is like, look, it's not it's not even he tried to explain it to John. It's not even my pride. You don't get it. It's just that they won't follow me if I bend the knee. It defeats the whole purpose. You know what I'm I mean? I'm no longer a leader if I do that. Right. Like, I've if, just given it, yeah. If John bends the knee to Danny, well, okay, fine. I don't care about my pride. I'll bend the knee. But now they're not going to, they're still not going to follow you, you know. But Danny's counter to that was, yeah, they will. If you're really this great leader, you say they are. Say you are. You know, they will. You know. And she may. She's kind of got a point, but she doesn't. But, but that's she kind doesn't of the understand point the northern. The attitude. reason I'm the great leader that they follow is because I'm not going to bend the knee here. You know. Yeah, so, yeah. It's, it's two. You undo one by agreeing to the other. You undo catch twenty two. Catch. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. So then, of course, they come out of the cave, and Danny's frustrated. She says, "All my allies are gone," and John kind of tells her. What he's unable to, what she's unable to grasp about why he's, a, why they're following him in some ways. It's like, because you made the impossible possible. And that's why they're following you. And they, some part of them believes that you can do that again. Maybe not make dragons again, but do the impossible again. And so she, she sort of takes his advice and that she can't just go melting castles and burning everybody. She, she at least doesn't do that. But she kind of understands also that she has to get out there and do the impossible means showing what she can do. So... She sort of took his advice in not just going to burn down the castles and, you know, making, you know, destroying the infrastructure. But she also was like, hey, John would lead from the front. John would be out there on the battlefield. And that much I'm going to do. Yeah, I feel like this is a sort of a compromise. 
where she needs to take action. She's angry. She's losing. She's got to make a move. But at the same time, from the beginning, the plan has been to rule after this. We can't just go slaughter everyone. They're not going to accept you as queen after the fact. So this is, I think, the compromise is go after the army. Go after a military target. Don't burn down. Don't burn innocent people in their homes. Go after the military force. Snow, I wonder if I want to know, do you guys think Danny's plan was John's idea? This is another super chat question. I think so. I think it was heavily influenced by, maybe yeah. not every single detail, but the idea that, you know, they may have gotten word. When they got word about Castle Rock, they may have also gotten word about the wagon train or something like that. And they would say, okay, well, yeah, attack this wagon train, you know. and They could piece together details. You know, they know that even in times of, even if there weren't winter and dragons coming, there's still going to be a process of collecting taxes and food mm-hmm. and soldiers moving around, you know. But they could probably anticipate some of these movements, specifically at this moment. Danny has the advisors she had before, plus John and Davos. You know, they're going to have some insight and make some some educated guesses about where to go, what's happening, and what kind of move they can make. And here's where experience really comes in. As we, as we saw, and as there was some dialogue to help explain, a wagon train is very, very vulnerable. This is a truth from ancient... A history as well. The problem with wagon trains, which are part of any army, uh, you know, to some degree, not any army, but almost any army has wagon trains, supplies, all the stuff. And it's always fairly vulnerable because it can't, you can't just bunch all the wagons together and have them march alongside each other like troops do. They have to stay on the road and the road is pretty narrow. And so that means they're stretched out, which puts, makes them vulnerable. So if at any point they got word that they had this long wagon train going from High Garden all the way to King's Landing, if they got any news of that at all, an experienced leader like John or Davos would be like, that's going to be vulnerable. No matter what, that's a weak point. You can't possibly have a well-protected wagon train, especially if you have Dothraki and dragons. There's no way they can effectively protect that. So this is open. So that might be part of where John came in with his plan. The part that wouldn't have been his would be obviously the intelligence gathering. He doesn't, you know, on his own, he doesn't know that that they have this big long wagon train that would be Varus and maybe Tyrion telling him that and between them all I think they probably came up with it but Danny was just adamant that I'm going in there <laughs> yeah yeah and it's really something uh let's let's get into it let's talk about the field of fire which we you know it's it, it's it was less like the field of fire than I thought it would be because you know one big difference with the field of fire was a pitched battle that both sides knew it was coming and they were both prepared for it whereas clearly these Lannisters and these Tarleys didn't see this coming. Maybe they were, you know, they weren't prepared. They started even, they were a little lax about it. They were almost maybe a little, maybe a little overconfident after winning so easily, you know, making their, resting on their laurels just a little bit. By the way, we get a, a pretty key line that tells us where this happens. He says, we've got to get the rest of the wagons over the Blackwater Rush by sundown. Blackwater Rush is the river that runs right alongside King's Landing. It's the same river that Stannis sailed up to try to drop his troops off right by King's Landing. And... Tywin's army crossed over and took him in the rear across the Blackwater Rush. So we're going to go into a deeper look onto the logistics of where these all happened. We're going to have some map shots on Wednesday and some some more detailed descriptions of where Danny landed, probably some range of possibilities. But we're working on that, and we've got some very good, clear answers on it. There was another little quick line of dialogue that if you miss, you might uh, not fully appreciate everything that's happening here is that the gold got to the king's landing already yes so that was a a key detail that was just mentioned one time that i think is important to point out another key line was randall saying if the head of the army gets chopped off the the tail won't be able to get up in time to help it so it's pretty clear that they're still near the front they're near king's landing near the blackwater rush 
where the gold is just finished in and there they're trying to get the food in because the food is a lower priority than the gold. Because, hey, if you lose the food, well, you can use gold to buy more food. But if you lose the gold, then the Iron Bank is done and that's, <laughs> that's a much bigger problem. So like at the beginning, I pointed out that there was this really, really neat, this conversation with Dickon, rather, was was ca- kind of, on the surface, it was kind of funny. They're laughing at his name, talking about fancy lad school, and Bron teasing him about, I learned that when I was five. But oh my goodness, there's so many, this, this conversation was really deep, and it had a lot of nods in it. First of all, go back to season one, I think it's episode five, where Robert has his first kill conversation with Jamie and Sir Barristan. Not only does Robert mention that his first kill was a Tarly who thought he could end the war with one swing of his sword, which Jamie tries to do a bit later with one thrust of his lance. Jamie was in the room for this conversation too, as I just said. Robert mentions this, how he, you know, this Tarly boy shat himself or peed himself and how there was the smell, which is exactly what Dickon brings up. He's like, yeah, they didn't tell me about the smell. You know, I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't prepared for that. That's the thing that he wasn't ready to, uh, to encounter. That was the thing that, you know, having a real life battle really, you know, showed. It's a lot different than training, and that was super well experienced by Tyrion in this battle. Tyrion is. There's all these shots of Tyrion like this is not what I expected. This is Tyrion was like looking at a wagon just running off into the distance with just a horse and it's on fire, and he's just he's just. Wow, this is so destructive. And he's seeing his family lose. Knowing that he's against his family is one thing. Seeing his family lose. Seeing these soldiers die and suffer and burn to death. That's not what he wanted. He wanted them to be defeated. But he didn't want this. And seeing it is so much different than just, you know, planning it and reading about it. He wouldn't have wanted the alternative either. You know what I mean? Like if Danny was flying over King's Landing, bringing up a bunch of innocent kids, and he saw that, that's not what he wants either. So... It's a lesser of two evils, or a lesser of lesser of ten evils, maybe. Yeah. Oh, by oh, I, great comment by Misty three hundred six here. The conversation with Dickon was a nod to Samwell. Remember, Samwell didn't have the stomach for battle. Now Dickon is realizing he's like realizing what <laughs> it's hard to have a stomach for battle. It's not so simple. Yeah. So that that did, did cast Dickon um, in a pretty positive light. There didn't like fighting against his friends, and he saved Jamie. You know, he's he's yeah. he's yeah. he stabbed a Dothraki from behind. And uh, he doesn't see. He seemed to have survived the battle. We didn't have an explicit death moment for him. They usually are pretty clear about. They'd be able to see his burnt body in the aftermath next episode. But I think he lived. I'm, I'm going to guess he lived. I'm guessing so did Randall Tarley. I think there's been a motif in this episode and this season, and as I think about it, maybe the whole show. But I feel like they're focusing on it more of the horrors of war. We've gotten multiple in this episode. We had multiple different characters kind of look around at this devastation and be taken aback, including some characters who've been there before. Mm-hmm. And they're still kind of taken aback. Braun, Jamie, and Tyrion, all three of them were uh, in dread of this scene. And we saw a similar moment with the battle at sea with Euron. And even in the past, if you go back to Blackwater Bay, we saw Sandor become overwhelmed with yep. this. You know? Even Sandor was super brave. And I, he had his trigger, yeah. I feel like there has even been a line at some point where someone points out that it's the reality of war is not as you know, fantastic as the the songs that are written about it after the fact. And and I appreciate that. I think that it's a point I've made a few times is that, you know, there's judgment on Danny about exactly how she's going about waging this war. But the fact is, if she's going to take the throne, if there's going to be war, well, people are going to die. It's just, that's what war is. And to me, that's the argument to... Not go to war. Don't yeah, go to war. Why does you want to be queen so bad? Just yeah. to, you know, if you want to be queen so you can protect people and bring peace, well, you're 
to killing people and going to war to do that. It's kind of now there will be different details as why different people go to war. Maybe her in charge is better than Cersei because Cersei's gonna end up killing more people anyway. But that that wasn't Danny's motivation when she was a little girl telling Khal Drago I want to be Cersei wasn't queen at that time. Joffrey wasn't king. You know what I mean? Like yeah. she wasn't like. Wanted to restore justice and freedom to Westeros. She never knew what Westeros was like. She just wanted to be queen because she wanted to be queen. It's what she thought she was supposed to do. Her yes. brother told her she's naive, just as naive as Sansa, who wanted to marry the prince. She just doesn't know what that means, you know? Yeah. Uh, now, along into. the way, as she's been on this path and gained this power, she has tried to use it for good. She's tried to free slaves. And at this point, Cersei is bad, you know? But a lot of death and destruction has simply come from her ambition. And at least in this moment... She's limiting death and destruction to armies, to yeah. armed soldiers that she's at war against, not innocent people in their homes, you know. Hey, super chat from our good buddy Pinome 123 Hey, buddy. Good point, Sean. Reminded me of the highway of death from the first Iraq war. Mm, <laughs> nice. Yes. Good parallel. There's also this bit before that's pretty sneaky. This, all these scenes start with Bronn's discontent, complaining about how he hasn't been paid properly, which is accurate. He, Jamie took him away from his bride in his castle to take him to Dorne and almost got him killed. And he still hasn't gotten, he's, he's like, I'll get you a better girl and a better castle. So I have, I think this is foreshadowing for Bronn flipping sides. Because someone can give him, Tyrion can give him better work. Tyrion back in season one was like, if, if you're ever tempted to betray me, I'll double it. You know, I'll double your pay. So my, yeah. my, my crackpot theory is that Br- Bronn ends up with the twins because it's kind of like doubling his two castles. Jamie said to give you one castle, I'll give you two castles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that'd be awesome. I love that. Joe Buckley points out that Bronn loses his gold during the engagement, but still fights on. He notices it, but he's like, well, obviously I got to keep fighting. So. Yeah, it's good symbolism there. He's given up his uh, he's given up his money for you know to maybe do other bigger, better things or to be involved in a deeper level and to not just be a sellsword or even to just save himself. He might have got killed trying to get that gold. Yeah, oh that yeah, that guy was after him. That oh, Dothraki yeah. soldier was had a. I agree. Had his number. He can maybe go back and find that gold later. No, yeah. he can't. He can't. He's been captured. Not but was, now. But he he also it was also really good for his resume. <laughs> well, yeah, what yeah. happened? <laughs> because he stays like he's you know he's a sellsword, but. He's the one who saved Jamie. He dove off his horse to save Jamie. So if they're captured and Tyrion speaks for Bronn, he'll be like, look, this guy, we should take him on. We should hire him because Danny might be like hesitant because like uh, you were too soft on your family. She makes that comment. You know, maybe you're just being too soft on your family. And if Tyrion, you know, t- Bronn's a friend, he might see it that way. But Danny doesn't want to just kill everyone. She wants to, you know, if, if Bronn bends the knee. Danny will take him in. She I might think. want to go Bronno. He shot that bolt into her dragon, so... Yeah, it's true. But she might, you know, she might have a Genghis Khan view of things. Genghis Khan was once shot... His own horse was shot out from under him by a man named Jebe, whose nickname was The Arrow. And Jebe was in another tribe. And when when uh, they were all captured, Khan, the Khan and other people were like, Who did this? And Jebe's like, I did. And the Khan was like, All right, then. Not only was he... Is he badass enough to do this? He was brave enough to admit it to my face when he's a prisoner. I'm making you a commander. <laughs> you know, so he rewards this with rewards good service with with loyalty rather than saying, "Oh, they were this guy was loyal to Jamie. He's worthless to us." So it kind of depends on what, what, Danny. Could, I could see her going either way there. It's yeah. Shades of Robert also. Robert yeah. didn't have Jamie killed, right? He put him on the Kingsguard. Ashea wants to know how would she know? Oh yeah, 
how would Braun know? How would Danny know that Braun fired the scorpion bolt at her? That's I a good think point. he's going to tell everyone. He might. He might. He <laughs> might. You're right. You're right. But yeah, that's a good point. He may. She unless someone says it, there's yeah. no way for him to for her to know that. That's a good point. I think it's totally in his character. He's a brash character. He wouldn't be. He he would he would brag about it. He would like, tell yeah, her. Like, I was doing my job. He's not going to be like I was trying to. He's like, yeah, I wanted you dead. I hate you. He's like, I got the order to do this. I did it. I did my job. You know, I say I tried to save my commander. You and know, I did it well. And you tell me well. to do something, I'll do that well. That's, that's what I meant yeah. by good for his resume. And Jaren's yeah. like, see, look, he's useful. Let's get this guy yeah. on our side. So uh, I hope so. I hope that happens because Ron just keeps surviving. And at this point, I stop thinking that he's going to. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to think he can't die because <laughs> he just keeps on surviving. Don't jinx it. Is he? <laughs> you killed him. He's dying next episode now. <laughs> Spentrails once uh, asked, what is Bran doing? I think we kind of covered the Bran earlier, for now at least. Uh, but Spentrails also wants me to say, hey, logistics, can we have another Aziz pep talk about how to ignore that, please? Otherwise, it will annoy us all to oblivion how the Dothraki got there, etc. Well, like I said, I'm going to cover that in greater detail on Wednesday. I want to make sure I prepare it properly. I think it works pretty well, especially because we know this wagon train was so long. And all it takes is a word that this wagon train exists like a raven being sent to Danny, you know, via Varus or something like that. Someone saying, hey, they have this long wagon train, which immediately tells you this is going to take a long time because wagon trains are really slow. There's been enough time for the gold to already get the King's Landing. That's so. right. So a lot of time has passed. Yeah. So all the, there's, there's a lot of ways that someone could have told Daenerys or Varus or Tyrion that this long wagon train that's occupying half the country exists. Like, it's not a secret, right? Even if it was only a couple ships that Theon came back with, if they could ferry back and forth loads yeah. of Dothraki, if any of the fleet that was left over from Stannis and Eastwatch was being used or ships were meant to come down and meet John or anything. I could see a bunch of ways it could happen. Yeah, I agree. So like I said, more detail on that on Wednesday. Um, okay, so here's another spot where the sound, obviously in this battle, sounds. They're obviously going to be a big part of the sounds, but they made, they introduced it a really cool way. You know, Jamie and Bronn, Dick and are having a little conversation and all of a sudden... Wait, what's that sound? So it starts off with the just the rumbling. Then it's the better rumbling. And then it's the loud rumbling. You can hear the screams of the Dothraki, which is, in the books, they're referred to as Dothraki screamers. So that was a nice touch to hear their war cry, their battle cry, because it was, it was pretty intimidating. It was pretty pretty neat. You could kind of see why that would be terrifying if you're a soldier just kind of holding the line there, like that coming at you. And then there's the real scream. The dragon roars yeah. and blasts. Shea has got to pull up uh, several different images of... The battle here, we poked out some of our favorites. We're going to have some more on Wednesday because there's just so many good ones. First of all, we have the shot clearing the way through the battle. There's a hole made in the line, which allows the Dothraki to charge through, which is crucial. That was her, that was very strategic. That was actually a well, well planned thing to do. It splits the forces. There's a wall of fire in between them now, and it allows the Dothraki to go through and thus attack the integrity of the line from the side and the back, whereas they're trying to maintain this line. Now they got to worry about the tracky behind them. Throws everything off. Plus, you know, Drogon continues to make more torchings of wagons and people all throughout that. So just chaos. I think that first shot was the only time that she specifically targeted soldiers, even though. Like, I've already tried to give her credit for going after this army rather than cities. But even when she's attacking the army, I think that was the only time that she specifically targeted people. And every other time she was going after supplies and equipment, wagons, whatever, which incidentally would end up getting a bunch of people, but she was showing off the dragon's power, right? You know, 
it, it, this is going to be a story to tell. This is going to affect the morale of troops. It might might cause it, it a might, surrender to come more quickly. It might prevent future battles if people are just yeah. so overwhelmed and terrified. Yeah. Like, whoa, we do not want to face that again. Um, but she's able to do all that without just killing every soldier there, without burning everyone alive. So one, she won't be seen as much of a villain. And two... These soldiers might come to her cause. Yeah. That's because, a pretty convincing way to decide who you're going to follow. You're like, how about the people with dragons? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, why? Yeah, it's, it's just so... Seeing them in action is a whole other thing. Like, Jamie and, and and all these people, they had no idea. And, of course, Jamie, this is going to hit even harder because he was Kingsguard Ares. And this whole idea of every of men burning is hits close to home for him, you know? And seeing this all, it's like, wow... That's one thing that's going to be difficult for him in terms of, like, if he's going to change sides, justifying, you know, his memories of Ares might make that a little tough for him to be like, I'm going to her side, the one that's, like, burning humans. She's going to have to, for he would have to, like, talk to Danny and see that she's not some crazy mad queen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like like Ares. He... Especially given the potential information he has about her, right? Yeah. Remember the Cersei speech. Remember mm-hmm. how Cersei pitched Danny to everyone and they're like, all right, yeah, she's crazy. We got to fight against this villain. You know, Jamie's perspective probably isn't far from that. He probably knows that Cersei's making it worse than it is, but now maybe it isn't. Now he's seeing the things that Cersei was warning about. Right? Yeah. Joe Buckley says, again, Joe Buckley is our new co-writer helping us out a little bit here and there with the episodes. He's going to be helping us write full episodes off in the uh, off season. Uh, he says this is some of the best cinematic shots I've ever had in the series, maybe the best. And, you know, he says, wait, we waited seven seasons hearing about Dothraki charges. The show is going to pull up this amazing shot of Drogon over water here in a sec, which was one of my favorites. Just so beautiful. Like, nice job. Nice job, filmmaker. This is so good. He says, waited seven seasons hearing about the Dothraki charges, thinking about what dragons could do, was not disappointed. Yeah, that was just, I, I was standing up in my seat. I was sitting like in a crouching position, like, whoa, just rocking back and forth and just fanboying out it was just so cool just to see them put all that together seven seasons of culmination seeing a dragon from above breathing fire down on these wagons and people it was just just overwhelming in the past i always watched the episode the first time i watch it just to enjoy it me too and then i'll go back one or two more times to take notes and pause it and look at a thing and ask a question look something up you know me too (laughs) so the and I'll tell you lately, I've been trying to live tweet the episodes. By the way, Dancing Sean on Twitter, on Twitter, follow me there. Uh, I've been trying to live tweet him, and follow him on Twitter and Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I realized that in this episode, once that battle started to kick into gear, I just wasn't paying any more attention to Twitter. <laughs> and then the next time I went to watch the episode to take notes, I just realized, wait, I didn't take any notes for the last fifteen minutes of the episode. I had to go back and watch it again. I just so got caught up in it. It was. It was. Really well paced and and as opposed to some of the other battles we've seen, we cared about the characters that were here. Something I, I realized even we haven't just, had since Blackwater. Yeah, and Blackwater, you arguably didn't yeah. care that much about Stannis then because he was kind of a new character. Like book readers were invested in Stannis, but show watchers weren't super invested into Stannis by that point. It was one season. I mean, a lot of people probably have been won over by his honesty and his grammar corrections, but he he hadn't been around a long time. You know, well, he wasn't the Battle of the Wall. Possibly. Cared about characters at the wall. Well, I mean, ver- on both sides. Oh, on both sides. Having okay, characters yeah. on both sides that we cared yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. That hadn't really happened. Home, we didn't care about both sides. Yeah, yeah. so, so, so that- yeah, having characters that pitted against each other we care about. And I realized how much it changed the dynamic when we realized that Tyrion is there. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I think on some level when you're watching things... It was a while before we knew Tyrion was there. It was yes. a lot of time before. Yeah. yeah. And it makes you reevaluate, uh, even when you go back and watch it, knowing that he's there the whole time. I think uh, on a certain level when you're watching something, you're 
you're you're kind of taking it in as yourself, if you will, but also you're taking it in via the characters that you're watching go through it. So which characters are going through it will affect how you take it in. And I definitely realized that I had a shift in my perspectives when I realized that Tyrion was there. It, my, it increased my fear for Jamie, for example, and Braun too. Yeah, absolutely. And that tension, yeah, it's something that's really, that we often lack. And of course, it's also presented alongside just some epic things that we've never seen before. <laughs> <laughs> the Dothraki and the dragons and all that, or the dragon, rather. Because there was so much of a human element present in this battle that it was that was really well interspersed with the action. It was back and forth between, oh, I care about this. Oh, this is so overwhelmingly epic. It's just your emotions are flying all over the place as the focus changes. And like you said, the pacing was really good, so it, it shifted well. It wasn't just jumping around randomly. It was action, action. Oh, human element. Human. Look at Tyrion. Oh, look at, you know, Bronn. Look at um, Daenerys herself. And... Oh my God! They're pulling out the scorpion. They're shooting arrows at her. How this is going to go? You just like how just wondering how this is going to work out. Yeah, you know? it kept ramping up moment after moment. You go from like, oh, I think we hear something in the background to, oh, there's an army. Get the troops ready. To, holy crap, there's a dragon. To, you know, they kept layer on layer, kept adding to the intensity of what was happening here. Ashea has another uh, image that uh, she pulled up here and attached a fantastic pun, or maybe we should say and outstanding pun uh <laughs> look at them standing on the back of the horses the trick riders we saw the behind the scenes footage of this the documentary explains how this was possible they had some special stirrups and at first the filmmakers even didn't think it was possible but then some of the guys were like oh no we can do this yeah we can do it <laughs> we, we've got this capability like wow i mean these guys are going at speed and jumping off and falling and pretending to fall and doing crazy stunts and just it's really really impressive so Braun and the scorpion of course Braun running to the scorpion was a lot like John at the Battle of the Bastards. Just like chaos happening all around him. Instead of a horse on fire going past him or a horse like with no rider, or a riderless head or a headless rider, <laughs> you got a dragon going over at one point. But it's the same kind of chaos where things are happening in every direction. Not No one's particularly focused on him, but anyone could kill him at any second. And well, it seemed like that one guy was focused eventually, on him. Eventually, yeah, that was, <laughs> you're right. That one guy came after him and uh, didn't work out for him. Sucker. Yeah. <laughs> so, and of course it was... A, you know, obviously, it remind, it's going to remind people of The Hobbit, of course. Yeah. There's a very yeah. similar uh, imagery there. But uh, for my money, I'll take this. <laughs> this is the, 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 the funny uh, dichotomy there is The Hobbit was a small story stretched into three movies. Whereas yeah, yeah. this is a long story compacted into too short of a time frame. So one thought I had on this, by the way. I, I When the dragon came and... Just first of all, the dragon just appearing. First of all, this this horde of horsemen appearing, like right off the bat, that would have been like an intimidating moment for these Lannister soldiers. Then you add to that, a dragon shows up. Then you add to that, the dragon breathes fire and kills a bunch. Then this sort of horseman gets, and this whole time, these Lannister soldiers they held their ground. Uh, they showed a couple of them like literally trembling. You could see some of the soldiers as they kind of pan across. You could see that they were afraid, but they held their ground. And I think they've that's been, a testament to. I don't know, Jamie or the Lannisters or Tywin Randall before, Tarly. Randall Tarly, whoever it is, has got these men disciplined well, and they stood their ground. And I, that that was already in my mind when the one Dothraki soldier said to Tyrion, like, oh, your people don't own a fight. It's like, bull crap, man. <laughs> they're fighting a dragon. How many Dothraki have they're had to face a dragon? Yeah. yeah, given the odds <laughs> that they're up against, this is a surprise attack, which it was hard to tell what the numbers were there. Um, it was another thing that was neat about it is as it unfolded, 
it maybe was a closer match than it seemed at first. Mm-hmm. I thought there was going to be this massively overwhelming force of Dothraki. We're just going to like wipe through like a hot knife through butter plus the dragons, right? Mm-hmm. But it actually seemed like the Lannisters were spread thin, but there were a lot of them and they were holding their ground. And the uh, dragons not being there, I think the Lannisters might have won his battle. It's possible. You know, it seemed like it was, it wasn't a straight route. You know, and I, I hesitate to say it was close because it's hard to get perspective of the whole battle altogether. But the fact that the men didn't run away, that Jamie didn't give an order to retreat, with so many being destroyed by dragon fire, makes me think that this would have been a close battle. It might have been. I think, you know, the Dothraki may have used a different tactic if they didn't have Drogon. They may not have done a frontal assault like that. They may have just used their superiority with missiles. They may have just peppered the line with archers before making the charge. Because they knew they had Drogon, it was just full frontal, go for it. But keep in mind, they they had their shields up, and they were firing their own arrows. Yeah, they had fewer archers. If I'm wrong, as badass as the Dothraki want to be, right? The fact Mm -hmm. is... A lot of their warring, maybe most of their warring, is just attacking villages of unarmed people and just or each other. pillaging. Now, when they attack each other, that's when he wants some warriors, right? Mm-hmm. But the Lannisters are maybe more trained for war than some of those Dothraki Well, they're soldiers, trained differently. You know? they, they may have less... They, they have different experience yeah. and different training. But and yes, it is true. Yeah. Talk about Genghis Khan again. He was just sweeping through Europe. Like, hey, actually, I take that back. He wasn't. He, well, he, didn't, he yeah. turned around and went back and just sent, like, the scouting force. And the scouting force was sweeping through Europe. They only turned around because Genghis Khan died. Yeah. So they, they went to back, back to choose yeah. a new Khan. And then later, but later, I mean, to be fair, later in history, when the Mongols tried to go through Europe, they had a tougher time of it. But they were ready for it. Yeah, but yeah, right. but, but to but your point, you're they right. Just, it first, was a different level. Yeah. That, this all-on cavalry assaults, you know, armored soldiers on foot just can't handle that. But... We have a super chat from Ethan Wright. Seems like the consensus is that Jamie is alive. Do you think that his plot armor is just this episode, or is he safe till Cersei's death? Thanks so much. Yeah, I do think his plot armor, like we said, I think his his, his he- real armor is weighing him down, but his plot armor will get him out of that water somehow. I see some people commented on how the, the, the water seemed unusually deep. He was running along the shore, and it was shallow, and then, you know, like a few feet off, it's, it's a, you know, it's got a lot more depth to it. It actually wasn't that deep. It looked really deep because they did this uh, the shot that Ashea is going to pull up here. Uh, I had this plan for later, but we may as well look at it now. Ashea is going to pull up the shot of Jamie falling into the water. It's kind of blurry, but, I, you know, it, it, it tells the story. But I don't have too much of a problem with that. It was a little awkward, definitely. Like, it seems like, well, that sure did get deep all of a sudden. But uh, it doesn't have to be very deep for Jamie to drown in it for the point yeah. to be made because he's in armor. He only has to be a few feet deep. Well, maybe more than I can't feet, decide but. if 12 feet is deep. It, it, yeah. that, that does seem deep enough for... The, the ledge that they were on to be into water that deep, it was, it was, it's a river they're next to. It wasn't like a cliff. Well, I, I'm not sure, but. Yeah. And yeah, it also, like, if the wider shot, not the one she's showing here, but the wider shot of it, you could see the bottom of the lake. At least I th- thought I could. And it wasn't that deep. It looked like 30, 40 feet, maybe, which maybe is still a little awkward for the shoreline, but whatever. That's a small detail. It did allow, by the way, uh, a sort of a parallel of him kind of falling into the water there. It was very similar to Bran falling down the window. Oh, yes. You're totally right. Very good catch. And it also, I see, someone had pointed out, um, I'll give them credit later when I find it, but someone pointed out the, the, the connection there between him and Tyrion going into the water back at, uh, at Valyria when Jorah rescued him from the water when they were attacked by the Stone Men. He pulled him back oh, into the water. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It was kind of cool. He didn't have that same sort of falling into the water. Upside. He didn't have that same imagery. But, yeah, there's another Lannister going over water <laughs> and, and almost dying. <laughs> so, back to the f- sort of field of fire. Jamie's charge. 
They use another kind of sound thing here, a trick of the sound, where Drogon gives this huge roar after he sma- his tail smashes another wagon after he lands with the bolt in his in his ch- in his ch- uh, wing there, and he screams really loud. And then it cuts to Jamie, and Jamie, and then the scream stops as Jamie notices that spear in the ground, and he and he gets the idea. And Tyrion's looking at him like, "Don't do it. <laughs> Just run away. Come on, dude, run away, run away." <laughs> and then he's like, "Effing idiot!" <laughs> as he charges. And I thought that was a great moment in a million ways. One, the way it was filmed, including yeah. the sound. Not only did they drop out the sound of the dragon roar. But the sound of the battlefield in general, the music, is a big shift. And there was a shift in focus, too, from the foreground to the background of Jamie and that spear in the ground and, and Danny in the background. And you could really feel, I really love how they got us all to go through what was going through Jamie's mind. You could see what was about to happen here and you could feel Tyrion's anticipation. It was beautifully presented moment of filmmaking and performance in the midst of all this chaos and action and fire and battle and everything. I really loved it. I see someone saying, we will always love you, sweet Lord Ramsay, in the chat. What is going on? (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were moderating these comments, (laughs) Ashaya. Just kidding. Okay, so you think you're moderating the comments. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, so a question from a a patron question ahead of time from Colin Van Wielden. Didn't they use the same angle for Jamie drowning as they did with Tyrion with drowning in season five? That's something like this. We will have to go look back at that to be sure. I don't think they used that angle for that, but they did use that angle for Bran, which is pretty huge because that was Jamie who pushed Bran. Uh, Well, this means someone's going to pull Jamie out as well. That's the part of the question I wanted to get to. Well, I don't know who else could pull Jamie out of the water except Drogon. I think Drogon has to pull Jamie out of the water. Yeah, like, again, depending on how deep it is, how much farther he falls down in there, maybe divers jump in after him, but they better do it quick. And if anyone's that nearby to dive after him, we didn't see him before. That charge would have been more difficult. But maybe at the moment of that charge, a bunch of people are like, oh, crap, the Khaleesi's in trouble. You know, a, a horde of, of yeah, Tyrion, movement might have occurred Tyrion there. and his little entourage moved forward. Like, when they saw Drogon struggling in the sky, they were like, there, so they were like, "Uh oh, yeah, <laughs> are we done here? Is she gonna die?" They were really worried. Everybody had that the Dothraki guy who said, "Your people can't fight." He finally got a little look of concern on his face. Even it, it, it's still mostly a mask of stone there, but he definitely like <laughs> had a look. There was foreshadowing <laughs> left and right of this. You know what I mean? We yeah. saw Cersei shoot that thing at the skull and the underneath the the keep, and we we know of stories of dragons being shot down in the past, and and they warned Danny. One all it takes is one arrow. You know, I was scared that it might be worse here, but yeah, absolutely. So I, I think, and Bronn wasn't wearing heavy armor; he was relying on his plot armor, which smart choice, Jamie. You don't need that big armor. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna die when the showrunners say you're gonna die, and not before your armor's mean. That's why no one wears a helmet. <laughs> So, yeah, there's, uh, so Braun, you know, I don't think he's worried about sinking. He can just swim to shore and be like, hi, <laughs> right below Danny, like with the dragon. <laughs> he's already thrown his dagger away at that one rider. So yeah, he's, he's, yeah. I don't think he's even armed at this point. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of people like us excited to see Jamie's a prisoner. We're assuming Jamie's a prisoner. I think it's a safe assumption. I really don't think Jamie's going to drown. Even though Nikolai Coster-Waldo tweeted, all good things. You're not fooling anybody, yeah. anybody, buddy. You're, this is Jon Snow saying, I'm not coming back after he, after he was yeah. stabbed. Like, please, no, you're coming back, buddy. <laughs> I do not. I, if I'm wrong, I'll be really surprised, but I'm really super confident here. And I think most of you guys probably are, too. So there was a lot of 
horror in this. A lot of horror shots, a lot of burning people, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of carnage. And both Jamie and Tyrion witnessing it. At first, most of it's Jamie's kind of Jamie's point of view. But then it shifts. You see a lot of Bronn's point of view, and then you see Tyrion's point of view, and then it's Danny's point of view. And those are the main four. You, but you get all of them. And some just overhead shots of just everything. I really like this one shot that we pulled up earlier of uh, the overhead shot of the dragon just blasting flame. There's that famous side shot that we're going to have on Wednesday as well. But Shea is pulling up this one here of the, the straight blast where she's taking out a bunch of wagons. And it bears mention, we talked about the wagons earlier, it bears mention that Danny doesn't know what's in those wagons. People are like, why is she destroying the food? She doesn't know that's food. She doesn't know what's in there. She just assumes it's supplies that the Lannisters are using. Maybe it's gold. Maybe it's more scorpion bolts. Maybe it's arrows. Maybe it's shields and swords and spears. She has no idea what's in there. She just knows it's military gear or something that that army needs. So it's a target. And and like you said, she would rather destroy the stuff than the people. And even if she did know it's food, let's say she knew it's food. Well, she doesn't want her enemy's army to be fed. Why would she do that? Because she doesn't want it. It makes sense to do that, right? Yeah. And also, maybe concerns of destroying the food if winter's coming and if she has to rule after the fact she needs that food, da da da. We're not sure how much food that this might be one of 30 shipments of food. We don't know how much food this is. So I'm not saying that Danny's doing everything perfectly, uh, but I think that. There are way worse things she could be doing here. The types of things that people are complaining about her doing, what are the alternatives? You know what I mean? Yeah. I think she's doing a, a pretty close to, given that you're going to go to war in the first place, which is the thing that I think is the actual issue, <laughs> but given you're going to go to war in the first place, people are going to die, right? And mm-hmm. so if people are going to die, isn't it better for it to be soldiers than innocents? Isn't it better to be soldiers' equipment than soldiers? Yes. So. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Like, if she takes away their ability to fight, then she won't have to kill the soldiers. They'll just surrender. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, that was kind of what the Lannisters were trying to do with the Unsullied. They're like, we don't want to fight them. We don't have any hope of turning them to our side. That's the one big difference. But rather than, you know, a frontal assault where they lose their own soldiers facing the Unsullied, they just do use a different strategy that works that involves a lot less death. I read this as a compromise, that I think that Tyrion is trying to get Danny to just lay siege to King's Landing and don't go off and kill anybody. And Danny's like, no, I'm going to burn King's Landing right now. So the compromise is, well, let's go the, attack this army in the field. And if they didn't do that, right? Say they follow Tyrion's plan and siege King's Landing. People are going to starve. Mm. That's the whole point, right? And who do you think's going to starve? Do you think all the wealthy Lannisters and lords are all going to starve again? No, innocent, the young, and the poor. That's who's going to starve, right? Mm. So if destroying this food causes people to starve, it's not that much different than laying siege on King's Landing, mm-hmm. right? That's but true. That's burning true. King's Landing kills innocent people. Here, at least, you are you might be doing some of the same damage you would have done with a siege, Right. But you are at least not killing innocents. And we're not even sure how much damage is really being done because you don't know how much food that was. And it's true. Like, et cetera, et cetera. Remember, this, this wagon train is miles and miles long, most likely. So, like, she didn't actually even destroy, like, all the wagons. She just probably destroyed a, a big chunk of them. Okay, so I see Painkiller Jane pointing out that Danny should know that, that, that it's food or at least suspect that some of it's food because she heard that, it, that about Highgarden getting taken. And they mentioned the food in the Reach. So, yeah, it makes sense that you would know some of it. But still, she doesn't have to assume that all of those wagons have food in them. Yes. Some of them have military supplies. Some of them have gold. Of course, she's wrong about the gold, most likely, because the gold was was already unloaded into King's Landing, apparently. But in any case, she's also not really that familiar with Westeros. She doesn't even know that winter is a big deal. Like, she knows, kind of, but it's not like she, something she lived through. She doesn't understand 
how important these food supplies are in the long run with winter coming. And I don't think her advisors have made her, made that clear to them because they don't even really know. They, they're not even that clear on it. They don't even yeah. really know how dangerous winter is. I mean, they've, they, they, fe- they probably feel like once we take care of Cersei, we'll be able to solve any sort of food issues. They just kind of take that for granted. Yeah, that's another thought. Say that they didn't destroy the food. Do you think Cersei's going to make sure it gets evenly, fairly distributed to yeah. everyone? You know, Certainly it's not like not, Cersei's yeah. going to perfectly manage all the food and Danny ruined it, you know. So. She's going to make sure the soldiers are fed so they can fight and everybody else can yeah. do what they want. And as someone, uh, as someone is pointing out in the chat, other people have pointed this out as well. A starving population, as harsh as that is, they're more likely to revolt. You know, they're more likely to help you from the inside of a siege. Be like, yeah, we'd rather have these invaders come take over because they're going to let us eat. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if, uh, it'd be funny if Danny just flew over the city with pamphlets with it, let her dragon drop. It was like, <laughs> overthrow Cersei and we'll bring you food. <laughs> a starving population is better than a burned population. Yeah, yeah. It's, she doesn't want to be queen of the ashes. But, you know, she did create a lot of ashes here. But but like you said, this might be, and this is this goes back to the Mongols as well. The Mongols were really brutal and vicious, but it was, and they used terror tactics. But it wasn't just because they were cruel. They had the capacity for cruelty, and they were cruel. But they didn't just... They didn't just do it because they loved it. They did it because it had a really powerful effect. If you burn one village to the ground completely, killing even the animals and poisoning the wells, and it word gets out, and you show up, and you're like, surrender, and we won't do that to you, you stand a pretty good chance of them surrendering. You know, so it's a tactic, and it's it's also as horrible as it is, you know, for that village, they're like, yeah, we'd rather surrender and give you everything and starve and nearly starve and have to survive, you know, through a tough winter than actually be dead. You know, and we the actually Old have Testament, kids. that's what... The Lord's instructions to the Jews were to kill every man, woman, and child. So when you get to the next city, they surrender. You know, that's this yeah. isn't something. This is an ancient war. Yeah. In, in a nutshell, yeah. So showing the power of her dragon, where a lot of people will see it and like, look, this is what you're faced with if you don't surrender, is a pretty darn powerful message. Now, Cersei had, didn't see it firsthand, and Jamie's not going to be there to convince her how powerful it is. And she still thinks, you know, oh, we're making more of these scorpions, you know, because Kyburn said we got everybody working on the scorpions. So King's Landing should be surrounded by scorpions. So Cersei's not going to give up so easily. But a lot of her commanders and men might be like, I'm not facing that again. Yeah, those soldiers <laughs> that lived through this battle probably joined Danny's side. Right? Well, and that is a whole other topic we have here, by the way. This is why I saved this for last. King's Landing. We already got, I think we've already had a tryout from, uh, for, um, the replacement army here. Someone who hasn't faced the dragons yet. Tycho Nestoria says, hey, if you bring the gold back, we'll back you. Well, they brought the gold back, so we're gonna back you. That's why yeah. I want to talk about this after, because we okay, know what's, yeah. what's gonna happen. What he said was, you know, she brings up the Golden Company, which is a 10,000 man mil- mil- uh, mercenary force that Stan has tried to hire, but couldn't. Well. Iron Bank mentions, he's like, oh, yeah, we've used them a lot as debt collectors and stuff. It's like, okay, well, there's Cersei's new army. Yeah. And they have no, they're not, they haven't faced a dragon, so they're not intimidated by it yet because they haven't seen it in action. They're not like, oh, my God, we're not dealing with that. They're like, yeah, we can face a dragon. Sure, we can handle that. We're tough. We're the Golden Company, blah, blah, blah. I have a lot more to say about the Golden Company on Wednesday. I'm going to relate some book stuff to it, but I'm really excited about the possibility of seeing them just just because they might say beneath the gold, the bitter steel, we might get gold skulls on pikes, things like that. So I'm really hyped about that possibility. But even if we get none of that, I love the mention of it and the fact that Cersei can bring in an ally that isn't going to be intimidated by the dragon, even though they probably should be intimidated by that dragon, but they haven't seen it in action, so they don't know. And it's the first time they face it, they have a battery of these scorpions. They might be even less con- or more, less concerned slash more confident. They may change the history of the Golden Company, the show version of the Golden Company, to say that they've been around since dragons existed before and have dealt with them before, which in book canon is absolutely not true. They've Dragons have been died out for a long time when the Golden Company was formed. But you never know. Like, they could change it, yeah. 
<laughs> Jake Slayer says, we just like severed heads, really. Yes, that's why I want those skulls on pikes. <laughs> Golden dipped in gold. It's like it's like what Viserys wanted to be when he was dead, but, you know, he didn't go that far. <laughs> so there was another comment that happened in that scene that perked my interest that I, I still, I haven't come up with an answer for. I don't know if you realize or thought about it, but when he says, we've used them to get back things that belonged to us before. And yeah. Cersei says, there are some things I want to get back to. I think she just meant the kingdom. I think she was just talking about... You think? Yeah, I don't think there was right. anything sneaky there. But if you guys have a different opinion, certainly let us know. But yeah, that's how I took that. But yeah, maybe, maybe Bear's uh, more watching. Or maybe Casterly Rock. Maybe she wants to get Casterly Rock back. And... Okay, yeah. I mean, that, that certainly... Maybe she meant that more specifically. Yeah, she certainly wants everything back. Uh, <laughs> to the North, Casterly Rock would certainly... Maybe she yeah. particularly wants that back. Yeah, that makes sense. Question from Vanessa Cole. What is your opinion on Danny's attack? I've seen a lot of criticism of her today, and I thought it was a very measured and calculated response to the losses she has faced. Curious to hear what you think. Okay, well, we've, I think we've talked about that a lot, but and I think, but I think that it's going to not go the way she wants anyway. Because, yes, I think she did. Like you said, she took, she more targeted the stuff than the people. But still, given Tyrion and Jamie's points of view, it was still just incredibly chaotic and destructive. And that is... Probably how the rumors are going to go. Like, oh, the queen, this mad queen brought in her savages and just shredded all these good people, ravaged the countryside and blew up, you know, destroyed all the food, you know, or something like they'll find ways to spin it to make Danny look bad. Because on the outside, it does look pretty bad. You know, like these are things that, that people don't like. They don't want the idea of a dragon killing a bunch of people. That's not cool. You know, and then the Dothraki, there's so much xenophobia in Westeros. They're all like, oh, savages, cult, you know, different culture, blah, blah. We don't like them. Like Randall Tarley shows mm-hmm. how that's a thing. So I think that despite her, that it was measured and somewhat calculated, it's still going to be problematic because the truth isn't how, what, how people perceive it. It may be problematic, but it will be less problematic than almost any other course of action she could have taken. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Other, uh, yeah. If she doesn't do something like this, she's just going to lose, <laughs> yeah. flat out lose the war, and that's that. So yeah, she's kind of committed at this point, and so we'll have to see what happens with that. That's going to be really interesting to see go, going forward. All right, we've covered most of our main topics, or probably all of our main topics, but we have a lot of questions saved up that we're going to get to now. So we're going to start off with some patron questions. Feel free to jump in with Super Chats or other chats from the um, in the chat box here, and Ashea may grab your question and put it in our little show notes here for us to answer. So thanks, everybody, for sticking with us. A lot of these will not make the final podcast version, as I've said, but a few of them will at least. Jeff Gnarly, our first sword, wants to know, it didn't feel like the previous Three-Eyed Raven was quite so unfeeling. Might Jamie be brought back by the Drowned God if that last shot indicated him drowning? Also, why was the water so deep two feet off the shore? How hard was he pushed off that horse? <laughs> yeah, well, I think, well, we addressed the water depth thing already. Um, I don't think he'll be brought back by the Drowned God. There's no one around that would have that, you know, connection to the Drowned God. There's no one around, like, there's no Ironborn in this battle. Or nearby. It's not like Theon's there or anyone like that. I just think he's going to be scooped out by Drogon or something like along those lines to save him. And uh, but I, and, I, and as far as the Three-Eyed Raven being not so unfeeling, I think, that's, I think I addressed that as well. It seems like Bran is still just overwhelmed by his new role. Maybe given time, he'll start to regain some of his humanity. Because I agree, the Three-Eyed Raven in the cave, you know, was more like a mentory figure not a here's what has to be he was kind of talking taking brand in and was being patient with him in a lot of ways and there's a difference between between knowledge and wisdom mm-hmm. and three-eyed raven's a lot older than brand in the first place not not only has he been the three-eyed raven longer but he's been alive longer so it makes sense that he would have more time to 
even if he actually didn't have emotions, to understand them better and convey them when he's interacting with other humans. So. That's a good point. From the snow in Winterfell, does the fact that Danny only brought one dragon to the battle, is that evidence that Rhaegal and Viserion need their own riders to be effective? I th- we talked about that aspect. I think yes, but also I think it's just a budget thing. Like they, the, the, just the amount of money they spent on the Drogon shots were just insane, um, and they wanted to focus on that. And yeah, I think it's just a good excuse to not have to do both. I'm like yeah, yeah it, it it works both ways. It's a production yeah. reason and just a, a story reason. Because like we said, she seemed to have some plan as to what she was targeting and what she wasn't. And it, the, the riderless dragons may not be able to be so precise. Precise. I think that fits. From Rosie the Clever. Which do you think was a better episode, this or Hard Home? Both were mid-season episodes that normally go for the first three-fourths than just madness and battle on an epic scale. Uh, Hard Home was definitely m- more of a surprise because I did not see that coming. We didn't do as much trailer review. We didn't do like film trailer review, uh, very specifically shot-by-shot stuff that we do now. So we're a little m- less likely to be surprised by what's coming. But I like this one more, I think. I think so, too. I definitely I like this one more. And to be clear, not that I didn't like Hard Home. And Hard Home maybe had... Uh, a level of excitement because we weren't anticipating the direction that the episode was going to turn into this all yeah, out battle. So give it a big boost for being surprising. Yeah. But uh, the fact is, as, as excited as I was by this battle and Hard Home, I don't care as much about it as I do about the drama of the characters involved. And I thought that interaction between uh, Littlefinger and Bran and Brienne and Arya. Those were yes. at least as good to me as as the battle with Ampar. I guess this battle was particularly good, so it may have actually outshone <laughs> I'm reminded of something I wanted to talk about before, though. There was a, 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 a quick, subtle moment that I thought was so well written, edited, and performed when Randall Tarley comes up to Braun and Jamie, and he's like, hey, we're moving along, trying to go faster. You know, if we lash these soldiers, that'll do the trick, you know. Mm. As he's saying, as Braun gets this grimace on his face, like, what, man, you can't, who's gonna, that's bullcrap, you know. <laughs> and and I think Jamie detects that. Jamie also knows this is a harsh style leadership that Jamie might even be okay with sometimes. He might, if Braun wasn't there, have said, yeah, go ahead, whatever, you, this is Randall Tarley style, he does want to hurry things up, et cetera, et cetera. But I think he recognized it would not be popular and might not probably not be good yeah so he tempers it he's like warn them first well you know tell them that you'll lash them before you start doing it and that yeah. see if that hurries them up they still don't hurry up okay fine lash them you know i thought that was a really good demonstration of all three of their characters there bronze kind of he's in this leadership position but he's been the soldier on the street before and that's bullcrap man <laughs> people just because yeah. they weren't going as fast you, yeah, you gotta be telling cool you know yeah and but randall the hard assy he is it maybe is the reason that the lannisters Soldiers stood their ground in the first place. You know, he might be the one that got that discipline in them. That's true. And Jamie kind of recognizing both sides and and coming up with a compromise. I thought that was a, a that's that took like two lines of dialogue and three seconds of airtime, but was a great moment. I thought to develop all their characters and their relationships. Right on. Next question from Grandmaster Clark, protector of wisdom and beards and beard wisdom. After that's a great guy. That's a great guy there. <laughs> that is a, Grandmaster Clark is Sean's. On Sean's Beard Council, the official grandmaster of, of Sean's beard. <laughs> After the amount of damage Drogon did, amazing scenes, and received Arrow to the wing, you think that Drogon will be out of action now for the foreseeable future, and could that lead to us seeing Rhaegal and Viserion in action? Maybe that is the impetus. This is my own addition to the question. Maybe that's the impetus to go, okay, about time to find new riders, Danny. 
If it doesn't look like the wound was that bad, but maybe it is. Maybe she'll want to be cautious and be like, "Well, I'm not taking any chances with the Drogon." Look again at that bolt. Yeah, we see a pretty good shot of it when he fires the the Dothraki when Bronn first gets in there and he opens the thing. That's got some barbs Ooh, at okay. the front that are like four inches wide. And okay, thick. like, and you mm. saw Danny like pulling that thing. And, and he roared. He's like, ah, yeah, yeah, that pulling like that it. thing out might do more damage than it going in. Okay. Now I don't think he's necessarily going to be out of action, but that might be a serious wound. I can imagine it, you know, having an impact on things. Yeah, yeah. And we know from, you know, I, I think he'll probably be okay. He recovered pretty quickly from the wounds he got in the pit, you know, and he was younger and smaller then. He took, you know, he took spears in Daznak's pit and the fighting pits there in Marine. That's what you mean by pretty quickly. It's it's relative. Like it wasn't a yeah. few hours or a few, it seemed right. like it was yeah, more than right. a few days, maybe weeks, you know. Yeah, that's true. It might be, but it could be a cool little plot device to get Rhaegal and Viserion in action or one of them. Yeah. Or to make Danny think twice about using the dragons. That's true. That's true. Uh, here's a question from Lady Allison Swan, I believe it is. Uh, can we talk about Jamie charging Drogon? Do you think he was taken back in his mind to Ares? We know it's a pivotal moment in his life, if not the pivotal moment. Jamie has the perspective of someone who's uniquely familiar with the madness slash cruelty of the last Targaryen ruler, and that's what he saw when he saw Danny and Drogon during the battle scene. So, yeah, and it's fear and trauma. She goes on to talk about fear and trauma. And how there's, you know, maybe Jamie had a little PTSD from working under Ares. It's entirely possible. And, you know, we talk about how Jamie and Tyrion had potential to talk to each other in while Jamie's in capsule, uh, captured. And we think, and we, you know, maybe it's natural to assume that Tyrion will have an effect on Jamie. But it could be the other way around. Jamie could be like, this is who you're following? This woman burning everything like that? Maybe it goes the other way. You know, I never, yeah. I never stopped to think about that, the other side of things, because it just seems like, well, Jamie's the one in captivity, so of course he's going to, but no, that's not how that works. Jamie still can have his opinions and independent yeah. thinking just because he's a captive. And clearly has expressed them as a captive in the past. Yeah. So I don't know, it's really interesting. Um, it's unclear how much Jamie's relating all this to Ares. Uh, quite, I'm, he can't not think of it. I'm sure he's thinking of it some way, but he's got parallels to Ares from Cersei too. So. Yeah. You know, he, I don't know if it might be hypocritical. If, if Jamie says, you're, you know, you're serving a queen who's just burning all this stuff. It's like, Matt, hello, Septon. Hi, Sept, you know, the Sept. Hello, burning yeah. things. Like, what are you talking about, hypocrite? <laughs> Aside from all that, this is just a moment on a battle when you have the chance to take out the leader. You yeah. know, like, yeah. in the first place, part of probably any great warrior or leader's success is a certain amount of boldness and risk-taking. Jamie's got, you know, the, the bad guy, the leader of the bad guys right in front of him somewhat incapacitated and unaware this is a big moment to make a big difference however risky it is he might also be willing to risk himself risk his own life to stop this carnage you know like on yeah. some you know he on some level has a responsibility to his troops and his people and his land and there's a dragon burning everyone up and there's the girl <laughs> in charge and he can go stop it all right now and it makes a lot of sense to me that he would do this even if it's stupid or suicidal or reckless or whatever else it doesn't surprise me one bit that he did it. Yeah. I see people wondering why they didn't poison the scorpions. Whether um, it wasn't poison tip scorpions or anything like that. Well, first of all, I think that that would be a clever idea, but it's hard to make poison. And you need a lot of poison if you're going to tip a whole bunch of different scorpion bolts like that. I think it's not. Yeah, a bunch of bolts are going to be missed. This, yeah. If they did this, there would be, we would have to be here sitting here going, all right, well, here's the logistics of how they can have that much poison. We have to come up with something. They and also, <laughs> what poison works on dragons or doesn't. Yeah, it's, exactly. Just, it's, just, it's an interesting yeah. question, but I think basically it would, it's it adds troubles to the storytelling that aren't worth having. Yeah, yeah. 
But I like the idea. Clever to think of that. Going back to comparing the two battles. We think about how it impacts us as fans going forward, but if we think about how it impacts the story going forward, Hard Home had a humongous impact on the Northern storyline going forward. It changed John's attitude towards everything. It changed all the other people who witnessed it. The, the Wildlings' attitude as yeah. well. And the only other witnesses like Dollars Ed and a few of these other nameless brothers that escaped as well. And Bran, of course, who witnessed it <laughs> yeah. from afar. And that's that's an important factor like it's it's that has impacted john and everybody from that point on everybody in the north has been just reacting to hard home since hard home happened i think that's going to be well cersei's going to have to react to oh my god the dragons can do that you know and now she doesn't have jamie so it's the aftermath of this battle that's going to matter so much and it's what this battle says about going forward and by the way, I think we can, you know, given what we're hearing about season eight, how there's like these much larger budgets and they're going for big cinematic moments, we might see more stuff like this. I think we will. I mean, we can't, we probably can't expect another episode this season that's got mega dragon action along these lines, but we can expect to see it again next season. I bet we get another one this season. We might. I just said we can't expect it. We, fair, fair. we we might get it, but it might be too much to hope for for them to have that much budget and that much time. As you pointed out before, almost every image we saw in the trailers we've seen so far. So if yes. there are more dragon battles, they didn't show it to us in the trailers. That's right. But so. it would make sense for them to show us first half stuff, not second half stuff in the trailers. So. That's true, yeah. They kind of have a lot of that hidden. Yeah, it is kind of weird to think about this happening the massive budgets that have been used in the first four episodes. I mean, this is stuff that you would, you like climaxes of action yeah. shows don't have budgets this large, you know, and this is the early part of the season. It's the first crazy. couple seasons, there was this pattern of having a big epic episode nine. Yeah. But I, I feel like at least last season, if not the season before, they were breaking from that. They were having well, big no, last, stuff happen well, in the first they, couple episodes. Well, they did too, know? but also at 9 was Battle of the Bastards. They still had the epic right. 9, but... <laughs> but... But they also had an epic 2 and an epic 7 yeah, and yeah, so on, yeah, right? Yeah, right. And yeah. this time, it's just... Uh, any episode can be epic, you know? So Definitely. You, know, you just can't predict, yeah. Um, okay, next question is from Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Black Rune. So I guess all the grain that the Lannister Tyrell army stole is now burnt. That sets the stage for the common folk to hate both the Lannisters for stealing the grain in the first place, as well as the Dragon Queen for burning it all. That's not going to endear the people of the Reach to either side. Yeah, that's true. Of course, it's not clear that that much grain was burnt, but I think that might be the direction the show goes with it. They may kind of... It's not necessarily all. Yeah. And also, I'm, I'm sure I could stir up some political uh, controversial talk with this but how much was stolen and how much was taxed yeah it's it's pretty standard in the first place to go out and collect grain as a, a taxation system to pay in kind so yeah, they don't have coins maybe they're yeah. taking more than they normally would and maybe you call that portion stolen but and it was taken in times of yeah. war taxes get raised people get drafted into armies you know what i mean it's this is again not some new thing that danny or cersei is doing that the people will be upset about America did this 20, 40 years ago. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is very true. It is very true. Okay. From the snow in Winterfell, do you think Sansa is now somewhat afraid of Arya? D&D mentioned in a behind the scenes that Sansa was for, the scene was for Sansa to see what Arya has become. But what does that accomplish? Does Sansa think she's on Arya's list? Or is that scene to empower Sansa to know her sister is forced in her own right and Sansa could potentially have a great ally in Arya? It might, I think it's probably got mixed emotions. You may have considered a lot of these angles. You know, they didn't yeah. have a bad relationship, but they didn't have a good relationship either. Now that they've been through so much together, it seems like they have more common ground than they've ever had, but they're not exactly tight, you know? 
a lot of times episodes leave certain images lingering in your mind. And a lot of times it's one of the last images, like Jamie sinking into the water there. But probably the most prominent image lingering on my mind from this episode is the look on Sansa's face as she turns and leaves after Brienne and Arya had the little battle. I'm trying I, to figure out what's going through her mind. I felt there. like she was breathing heavily there, too. I think it was yeah. subtle, but I think she was like, like yeah, like she was going on. At a minimum, concerned, if not upset, and... Uh, Trying to restrain it and leaving Littlefinger's presence before she revealed something, you know. Another question from Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Black Rune. With Drogon grounded, do you see do you guys see John attempting to ride a dragon in hopes of rescuing Danny from her enemies on the ground? And if he becomes bonded to a dragon, how do you see that balancing the political minefield between John and Danny? Maybe that could be the moment Danny realizes her destiny is intertwined with John's. And more exploring of dark caves ensues. <laughs> oh, uh, I see what you did there. Um, it, it could be. I think one thing or another is going to push John towards the dragons, but I'm still kind of skeptical that it's going to happen soon. I'm really iffy on it happening this season. Um, because we, especially because we know John has a lot to do in the North. You know, we, we can't, we don't want to talk too much about that, but what little we know about the preseason trailers shows a lot of John in the North scenes, which is almost like, well, is he going to, ride a dragon and then go north without it or is he gonna go north and then come back to ride a dragon it just doesn't seem to fit and it seemed to be conflict he was in conflict with other northerners and it seems like if he rides back in a dragon that'll cut short a lot of potential conflict you know so yeah it, it part of me was wondering if that might happen i i thought that john was gonna go to dragonstone and go right back and you might spend an episode there but now it looks like he might be a dragonstone for many episodes maybe maybe he'll go back next episode especially if it's called east watch i didn't know that but i don't know i Certain certain bits of what has been revealed in trailers and stuff of what's coming limits some of the theories that I might come up with. <laughs> I would have thought that John might be a Dragonstone long enough to form a relationship with Danny and a dragon and ride back on a dragon. I, I thought that was in range. But some of the shots we've seen of John in the North make me more suspicious of that. Mm, okay. Question from... Fat Donkey. As Varys was the master of whispers for a long while, I feel like Varys should have a lot of information he could use to influence John. For example, bend the knee and I'll tell you who you were your father. <laughs> or I'll tell you who your father was. <laughs> I seem to remember a few theories floating around saying Varys may know about John's true parents. Well, uh, there's theories that Varys could know because he's such, you know, he's got so much information. He, he could piece it together. Yeah. yeah. He wouldn't know. Yeah. There's nothing he explicit. Could, he could know. He could know as much as we know. Like, we yeah. don't know either, right? But right. we can piece together the information been given to us. Varus would probably have most of that information. It's, it seems like something, yeah. So it seems like Varus could know, but there's no direct evidence saying that he does. And, yeah, but he does know things. He does know things that could smooth over their relationship, like talking about how Ned didn't actually want to kill her, how Ned was right. adamantly refused to kill her. He was like, he resigned his handship over this issue. Yeah. Varus probably should point that out at some point. <laughs> the fact that he hasn't, is that suspicious? It might be. Yeah. It might be. Um, I will say that whatever Varus could tell him, though, it's, it's not enough to bend the knee, right? Like, yeah. Danny has armies and dragons. That's more valuable than any information Varus can, you know. John can't go back to the north and saying, you know, I wasn't going to bend the knee. But then Varus told me who my parents really were. So, I, you know. <laughs> yeah, Danny flat out said, I will defend the north. I will stand beside you if you bend the knee. You know? yeah. <laughs> so, and John still didn't bend the knee. So, yeah, it, it's, it's not so easy for him. Varus could sway John, right? But I don't think he's got some secret that will yeah. convince John. And he should probably try. If he's trying to play, if he's actually a spy, if he's actually playing the other side, or if he's keeping his options open... It'd be a good way to make him look like he's doing their things for Team Danny. <laughs> yeah. 
Question from Darren Tucker, Knight, uh, Darren the Red, Knight of the Forums. Do you have any theories about the children's spiral design, cave drawing, the fist, and where the children of the forest created the others? No. But I will by Wednesday. <laughs> we are thinking about that and we're opening that up for other people to send us theories. Yeah, you know, it's, it's completely not a book thing at all. You know, it's, there's no, there's, there is no spiral pattern in that opening prologue in the books. There's none of that. So it I don't know. It could be some sort of tracking, some sort of calendar system. You know what I mean? Passings yeah. of moons, or the formations constellations in the skies, constellations of the sky. when the long night will come again. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. cause there, cause some people pointed out that there's some sort of sunlight, sort of sun type stuff going on in there, which might be like blocking the sun or bringing the sun back or like mm -hmm. some sort of symbol. There may symbol be like some that. symbolic meaning, meaning to the, the number of, I don't know what to call it, branches or arms of the spiral. You know, like if there's seven of them, for example, that might be, Oh, the religion of the seven, you know, but. Melanie Obviously, Pat we don't know. <laughs> Someone's pointing out that they're kind of like crop circles. Yeah, they are a little bit like crop circles. Yeah, aliens. Yes, the White Walkers are aliens. Hey. Soon, hey. Game of Thrones... If Game of Thrones was on the History Channel, then that's... Yeah, that's probably <laughs> the directions they, they'd go with this. <laughs> but I'm waiting for aliens to show up in Vikings one of these the, days. The White Walkers are <laughs> Sith. <laughs> <laughs> So, Melanie Patrick understands how to get a question answered. In this case, it's a comment, not a qu which is by making a pun. A good <laughs> pun in this case. The importance of grammar, she says. Episode three. Well done, Lannisters. Episode four. Well done, Lannisters. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, good one. Too good soon. one. Too yeah. soon. Too soon. <laughs> uh, people are confused. I keep saying ash on production. Ash this, ash that. And people think we're talking about the Lannister soldiers that were turned into ash. No, no, we're talking about her, our production guru over here. <laughs> question stephanie vale should there be a rickon statue in the winterfell crypts i don't know about should there but that would be a wonderful little thing to do for them and by the way people in case you missed it earlier people i saw people asking about why they didn't talk about rickon i think it's a painful memory i mean aria bran the way sansa brought up bran she's like oh yeah bran's here and aria's like oh he is and she's like and Arya gets it based on the facial question, like, that's not good? There's something about <laughs> this, uh, yeah. So you wonder if it's just they already, she already knows and they haven't brought it up, like the mission, you know. Yeah, I'm sure know. they'll talk about that and many other things, but they don't have, like, just think realistically. Yeah. How long would their conversation be, right? It wouldn't be, too, it wouldn't spend two minutes talking about Rickon. It took hours about Rickon and everything else that's happened. The episodes just aren't that long. Yeah. I would love it. I think that would be the, I love the show enough, but it, if they actually had the time to go in to, like, have an episode that was just, like, a 30-minute conversation between two characters, like, how many, how few shows are, are bold and successful enough to get away with something like that? You yeah, know what I mean? yeah. Like, I would love for that to happen, but this this show has a lot of plot lines going and a lot of action is expected, and there's no way we're going to get a full-on conversation covering the death of a family member, you know? They're just, you know... It's not that they don't talk about it. We just don't get to see them talk about it. Fair enough, yeah. Chris Foy, why do you think Arya laughed when Sansa laughed at her list? It was kind of like the scene with the Lannisters, yeah. the good guy Lannisters. She said it, and then when they laughed, she's like, oh, yeah, this is outlandish. And she's just kind of just regaining some of her humanity. It doesn't quite isn't quite all there with it her interactions. Conflict, yeah. Right? She she maybe slipped a little by saying it in the first place. And Sansa's like, what list? And Arya's kind of on the spot, you know? Yeah. And so when she, she tries to give an honest answer both times, and when she does, it's taken as a joke, which gets her out of the spotlight. You know? Yeah, she yeah. doesn't necessarily want to explain all this right now, and she, she found a way not to have to. Ha <laughs> ha, yeah. <laughs> That's funny, isn't it? You know? 
This is a good, uh, fairly good stopping point if anyone wants to jump in. You certainly have, still have a minute or two to get a super chat in, but we're going to start wrapping it up here with some thanks and acknowledgements, and it looks like Sean has something else to say. Yeah, I was just thinking, and we've gone almost three hours that hardly even noticed that we did it. I, I, I don't think we would have guessed that we were going to go this long. I, I did guess that we might go longer than normal, even though it's a shorter than normal episode. Yeah, and but, battle scenes, you we often have less to like there's less to analyze, but this yeah, one had so had much to analyze. Yeah. There was so much so, to say. The thing is, <laughs> we still have over 500 people watching us even after three hours here which impresses me but it makes me wonder if we got to our goal of six thousand that i'm sure all of you were telling tim friends each about so that we can get there <laughs> to do the 24-hour stream how many of you are committed to watch it for all 24 hours that's what i want to know <laughs> people would like go to bed with it on wake up it's still gonna be going no 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 there's no going to bed with you not for us i'm mean, no going to sleep you can go to bed but you can't go to sleep you gotta- <laughs> watch in bed Okay, folks. Well, we really appreciate y'all sticking with us. This is a nice, long, long episode. Having so much fun chatting with you guys like friends and family. And appreciate all the feedback and the great questions and the great comments. People pointed out a lot of things. I mean, we miss things and you guys have our back. Shay has got us covered as well. She makes sure we see those great comments. And yeah, I'm just overwhelmed with the awesomeness of the episode, the awesomeness of you guys and it's just so much fun. I love show season. We will be looking forward to analyzing the next episode. We have Wednesday stream with Radio Westeros, which we should hopefully have both of them this time. Lady Gwen missed the last one thanks to the Storm God. Damn you, Storm God. Let's give some acknowledgments. Thanks, of course, to Ashea for running production and managing the chat room and all of our back-end stuff here. So many things that are going on. It's just as I appreciate all the work that goes into the show behind the scenes when watching these documentaries, it unfolds right to our left here and before when she's doing her work as well. So much goes on that you guys don't even know about. So big thanks to her. I know you guys really appreciate it. I know you appreciate what she does, but... I can never say enough about it. Yeah, I never want to miss an opportunity to give credit to editors. I think of the Academy Awards, it's always, you know, best picture, best actor, best director. Best editor needs to get more credit. Right on. Very true. So let us give thanks to Michael Klarfeld for our video intro. And thanks to Joey Townsend for our music. Thanks to Jesse Kowal for the cover of our music, which we use for the outro in the podcasts. And thanks to all you guys for showing up, guys and gals and lovelies. Uh, <laughs> lords and ladies, knights and and uh, whatever other titles y'all have. I'm running out of words here. <laughs> Ashe is the producer that was promised. Someone said that's now that's an on point compliment. There you go. I like that. So also thanks to Lord. Uh, whoops, where am I at? Lord, the mysterious Br. Hand of the King is our. Is our hand of the king. <laughs> Lord Jim, the fortuitous of wards and politics of Ice and Fire blog, is our warden of the west. Lord George Stormsville, the cunning, lord of the Chiliad and warden of the east. Cabeth the Unfrozen is lord of the bricks and castle Crimson Light. He is defender of the old gods and warden of the north. Lady Kelly McMath is of Covington, lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs and warden of the south. Special shout out to our friend uh, Joey Massey, a.k.a. Sir Guinness of Buckhead, who we know through our... Ancient, ancient, far in the past Magic the Gathering days. Sean and I both used to play a lot of Magic the Gathering. That was a way to make, we made a lot of friends through Magic the Gathering, kind of like now how we make lots of friends through Game of Thrones. This is where we are today, and it's kind of similar in some ways, these communities that build up. I'd say the Game of Thrones community is a lot different than the Magic the Gathering community, but there's some things that they have in common. They all love dragons. (laughs) They all love dragons, (laughs) that's very true. 
Also thanks to Lord Osborne of Castle Werewoods, who is spreading the old gods by planting werewood saplings in the Reach, Stormlands, and Crownlands. His motto is, Our Roots Run Deep. Lord James Tuttle is King of the Stepstones and the Narrow Sea, commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet, led by flagship Caraxes, and the Bloodstone Fleet, led by flagship Prince Daemon. These are ships you do not want to mess with, and it looks like they're going to be uh, spilling over into the realm of Salador San. There might be some, uh, some extracurricular activity going on with those navies. Our small council consists of Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight, Master of Whisperers, Grand Maester Saria of the Barrows, Cinder of the Citadel, Lord Robert Jacobs, Master of Coin, Rosie the Clever is Master of Laws, and our Council of the Beard so far has our one member, that's Sean's going give to this, give this gentleman a shout out. Grandmaster Clark, Protector of Wisdom and Beards. I think we took a question from him earlier. Too. That's right, we did. It's probably the wisest question of all. <laughs> Lords and ladies in their castles include Lady Dyerliz of Castle of Nyaki, who is the Alpha Patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone. Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges. Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort. We've had um, one of our artist patrons has volunteered to maybe draw Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort, or just the Breadfort. We'll see about that. Mm-hmm. We'll try to arrange that because that sounds awesome. Alicia Everlasting of the Green Blood, Lady of the Desert Rose. Hat tip to her for the catch on the scene, the relationship between Robert Brathian's first kill conversation and Dickon's uh, conversation with Jamie and Bronn. Thanks to Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate, Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass, Lord Garen de Havilland of Devil's Hand Keep, Ashlyn Winner, the Hawk's Eye, Cat Lady of Castle Skyfall, Lady Mikkel of Moonanchor, leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance, the Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed, Lord Alster Whitaker is Lord of the Dawnhold, Lord Bemmy Snuggle Bunny is Guardian of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood and holder of the Vorpal Snuggle Bunny. Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackrune is sworn alesmith to House Stark, Grand Master of the Zithamancer's Guild, and Keeper of the Buzz, and has been asking a lot of very good questions. Brian the Defender is Lord of the Spearfort and the Freelands, last scion of Clan McCulloch, motto strength and courage. The Bastard of the Wolfswood is first forester of the Old Gods, sworn to House Ironwarewood, motto listen for the silence. Connor the Dungeon Master is Lord of Catamount Keep and Guardian of the Smoky Mountain Pass. Our King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Our King's Guard is commanded by Lord Commander Sir Christopher Dane of Starfall, Sentinel of the Torrentine. And uh, Sean, how about a shout out for the Commander of the Beard Guard here? Lord Commander George the Golden. That's right, formerly Commander of the History of Westeros Night's Watch. He is he retired from action and returned to the fort ahead of a different Lord Commander. This is this man is full of experience. He's been inspired to return to action. It's a great guy. has a great resume, this guy. History of Westeros Night's Watch. Speaking of them, it's commanded by Lord Commander Daenerys Flint of the Night Fort, avenging the memory of Brave Danny, First Ranger Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Greenshield, First Builder Patchface of Motley Wisdom, First Steward Sir Jurion of the Torrentine is called Palewind. And a few others. I've been throwing out a few other random names that I really like that we've been collecting over the years that have, some people have never gotten shout-outs. And some of these are just kind of fun, so I, I throw them out there. Here's a good one. Captain Louis, the Merchant Prince. When men see his sails, they pay. Sales spelled like you know, salesmanship. <laughs> we have uh, Sir More Wine. Uh, that's a good one. We have A Man Has No Name. Uh, uh. We have Sir Adam Whitehead of the At- At- Atlas and Fire blog. That's Werthead, who is um, a longtime um, 
chronicler of not many different fantasy worlds, but particularly A Song of Ice and Fire, and a member of the original Brother Without Banners, and a good all-around guy. Also, thanks to Sir Chubbs Rivers, the bastard of Raven Tree Hall, Lady Lana of the Woolly Keep, holder of the Valyrian Knitting Needles, Winter is Coming So Faster, <laughs> and finally, Sir Montes Bruno, the Black Trident. Okay, everybody, that is all for today. An extra long episode this time. We will see you all on Wednesday and or Saturday, hopefully both. And on behalf of Ashea and Sean and our beards and um, all my Dothraki lawyer brethren, Valar Reflamus, Valar Reburnus, Valar Respoilus, 